Hi, everybody. Welcome to Office Hours. If you've come here via YouTube, well, you want to know more about what we do, probably. And if so, just head on over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Uh, you'll notice also down here somewhere, I think it's going to pop up in a second, is a QR code. That QR code allows you to ask questions into the show, kind of, sort of, in real time. It actually takes a moment for uh, it to go through the middle thing. So, But you can use that easily. You can also type Type in the URL that's above that QR code if you want to get a direct question into the show. The other way is through our Mukana interface, which allows you kind of more access to the back end of the show. And in fact, there's a community that usually watches live and discusses the show in real time. A lot of fun for a lot of people. So you can attach to the question and answer system in those three ways. And we encourage you to use whichever one is best for you. Um, Today, our second hour, very special, one of Alex's old friends from the Star Wars day, Ian McKaig, designer of such pop culture icons as Queen Amidala and Darth Maul, is going to be joining Alex for our second hour. So it's a big day today. We're really looking forward to our second hour. But this is the first hour where we handle general questions. So, Mitch, what is our first question today? Thank you, Bill. Our first in is Sam Greenwood from Toronto, Canada. And the question is, what are good low-cost inner ear monitors? And let's see who's ready for this. I have to pin something here, and we're going to start this morning with uh, Sam. Uh, I'm sorry, Alexander Knight. Alexander. Yeah. So Sam, since you're in Canada, I'm going to give you uh, links to where you can get these in Canada. But there are three recommendations. I have been a long proponent of Westone Audio in your monitor, so I don't know what exact budget you're talking about here but for under $200 Westone Audio Pro X10s those are single these are all single drivers the Sennheiser IE100 Pros and the Shure SE215s are all under $200 Canadian of course lots of people on the panel too have mentioned in the past and, and I know they use the Linsoul um said something i can't remember the exact model they're about 50 bucks or so for those ones so that's another budget conscious option i'm not a huge fan of the way they sound personally i think if you spend a little bit more money you'll get something considerably better but those are the three and i'll put links in mukana mitch hill yeah alexander is right i mean the the uh, range of prices available for iems is quite extensive up to thousands of dollars if you're getting them uh, custom molded for your ear. Um, I'm not the the low end kind of guy. I'm kind of the middle range, and I went with a a set of Shure 215s, which I've have stuck in my head right now. Um, it takes a while to get used to them. The best thing to do with these is a uh, uh, something that Mickey recommended the uh, the, the foam uh, ear tips made by Comfy. I think it's called uh, Comfy.com, and uh, that made a huge difference in how they fit in my extra large noggin. Uh, let's go to Courtney Gooden. Courtney. Yeah, those were really good suggestions for music monitoring or stereo uh, in-ear monitors. If you're looking for something that's used for IFB, like we're doing here, like the one that I have in my ear, uh, really cheap, uh, these HYS, uh, they're acoustical, have the little uh, disposable uh, earpiece and uh, the uh, plastic thing, and they have a pretty good driver, the plastic tube with a little stretchy thing on it. They are about... Uh, I get them two for 20 bucks. They're about 13 bucks on Amazon or HYS1 with a uh, 3.5 millimeter plug on them. If you're using them for IFB, uh, they're, they're very good uh, for hearing voice. I wouldn't use them for music, but for an IFB for, uh, to let you listen and keep a low profile, it's what a lot of people use. 
similar items uh, in network news, etc., where they have to hear the director or comms or the program feed. Mitch, you want to do a follow-up? I just wanted to ask, uh, Courtney, what's IFB stand for, for those that are wondering? Interruptible feedback or foldback. Foldback, yeah. Yeah, interruptible foldback. So that and that is the process of a director coming into your ear while you're live on the air, and that's what that foldback circuit is how you get direction typically when you're on things. We use a form of that with our comms system, but that's typical in TV stations for news readers and things like that. I've also used something as inexpensive. I, it, this is down in Courtney's price range, these uh, little far-end single things. The thing I like about them is if you have a stereo feed that collapses it into mono so you don't have any phase or, or problems with that. The one thing I would say, if you're going to wear it every day, those are the reasons that I moved up to the N-ears or something equivalent that costs a couple hundred bucks. But the sophistication of the in-ear piece is such that you can wear it every day without significant fatigue. Um, these little earbuds, like I just showed, uh, even the ones that have kind of squishy tips, I find that if I put that in my ear and wear it every day for three hours, my ear gets wonky after a while, starts itching. I think it's just because it closes off all airflow. And the more sophisticated ones generally have a kind of a an aerated tip, if I could call it that, that allows a little more oxygen in and probably is healthier. I don't know. You have to ask an ENT doctor whether I'm right about that. Chris Fenwick, you had a thought? Yeah, I just wanted to, uh, for Sam, just sort of the wrap up. The So the IEMs is in-ear monitors. Uh, and as Courtney said, there's plenty, of, or Mitch said, there's plenty of price ranges in that. And the most important part of the IFB which is more of a system than just the thing that goes in your hair, is that eye. So if you are wearing that, it's not just headphones, your hearing program. It's perfect for somebody on camera who's doing like a remote interview. They get to hear the person that they're talking to remotely. It's not on a speaker to cause feedback. But the interruptible part means when a director or producer presses a button in the control room, the program feed ducks and then they can talk over it as soon as they stop talking or let go of the button, the program feed comes back up. I, th I don't think a lot of people have the occasion to, to actually listen to them, but that's, that's how that works. Yeah. Hey, good, good explanation. All right. We've been on this for a little bit. Next question. This just in on our QR drop uh, from Gavin Adams in Mountain View, uh, Wyoming. I just wanted to say that I love the show and the format and the expertise. Thanks and well done. Well, Kevin, thank you. We appreciate your kind words. You know, it's, it, it does take a village, and there are literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people who make this show possible every day. They're very hardworking and dedicated people. This is an all-volunteer effort, so uh, thank you for the thanks. We appreciate it, and thank you to those of you who watch the show, because without you, there's no reason for us to do anything. Next question. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Thoughts on this dock and referring to an Ivanki 20-in-1 Thunderbolt 4 Quad 6K 60 Hertz monitor docking station. Wow, that's a lot of numbers. Jason Bache, what say you? Yeah, it sure is. Uh, okay, so pretty interesting piece of kit here. Um, first things first, the price tag, $550. And as far as I can tell, Quad 6K is only going to work with the 2021 through 2023 MacBook Pros because uh, you don't think you can get an M1 Mac Mini to, to do that. It's, it's not going to be splitting the pixels. It's not going to be 
um, snuggery faking it out and, um, you know, giving us a fake second display. It's interesting. Um, and I, yeah, I'm a little hesitant. A lot of money. That's interesting that it needs M, not just M1s, but M1 Max chips. So this is obviously uh, interacting with your computer pretty robustly. Jeffrey, your thoughts? So, yeah, I'm looking at this. It does not have DisplayPort inside. So if you're trying to connect up more than two monitors, you're not going to be able to do anything. So it and uh, that's just a limitation by the Mac, by the M1, uh, unless you have the DisplayPort uh, it installed because I do I have the what I do is I have my OWC dock and then I have a pluggable though those uh, two monitor HDMI monitor pluggable uh, ones which do have display port in it and that comes to the next point is it's all about the chipset inside what it just like any other PC you have these boards that have chips that are made by certain manufacturer, like uh, uh, an audio board made by, uh, by, by, I can't think of the name of the company. Anyway, uh, uh, like SoundLogic or something like that. Or, uh, but the whole idea is that there's several different chips inside and it, whatever they're using for their OEM build it's just technically what that is, then uh, it'll work that way. Other than that, uh, I, I haven't looked at the chipsets inside, so I can't really say how solid that inner part is. Okay. Well, um, there we go. So hopefully you've gotten enough info to make a quality decision. I'd be interested to take a look at that because I'm kind of, I think I'm at the max. I've got an OWC dock that has 16 ports and I think 15 of them are filled and the other one is a USB 2.0 port that I don't really need. It's just crazy how many things <laughs> those of us who do this and have fun with it can end up using. You buy it, it's full. It's crazy. Uh, Mitchell, you had a thought before we move on? I, it was just an anecdote that uh, the, the, as many ports as available will get filled up. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I, I think I've told the story before in my old studio. I put in Edison plugs, and I, it was back in the days before the smaller power supplies were. And I think I put in close to 100 Edisons. I mean, there were quad boxes everywhere. And I looked up one day, and I almost had it full, and it just kind of freaked me out that I had that many things to plug in. Let's move on to the next question. And it's from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. Wirecast 16 released over the weekend. What's up? Yeah, Jeffrey Powers, help us out. Oh, yeah. So we have several different, make sure that I have this set up right. We have several different uh, features. This is Wirecast 16, looks like Wirecast 15, looks like Wirecast 14. Uh, two of the big features are the SRT uh, capture, which all of my cameras in my studio, these are all SRT cameras. So I was able to do that. Guy and I tried to create a point-to-point uh, -point SRT stream from his place to mine and uh, haven't been able to get that to work. The other cool thing that I like is the virtual assistant inside. So if you've got any questions on how to use uh, Wirecast, then, uh, then you can just ask it and then it'll come up. Uh, but of course, if you're asking it for, I don't know if you, I don't know what, how far it will go as an AI assistant, but because I haven't really tested it. Those are the two big features that I saw. And uh, I don't know, Guy, did you see any new features? as well those are the two biggest uh i mean zoom integration so um i was testing it last night and it seems to be working really well the only thing that i didn't see that it had was um active speaker i would like in a gallery view inside of um, the the system so this is it working 
here. Um, and I did get Jonas to come in via SRT. So his that same address that I gave you, um, uh, Jeffrey, is, is working. So this is an SRT oh, feed. Oh, you wanted me to come into you instead yeah. of you coming into mine. Okay, yeah, that's So you would have been caller and I, I was a listener. So, um, yeah, one of the cool things is now if you go under social, there's a new thing here that says Zoom. So I'm in a Zoom meeting. And once you're in a Zoom meeting, then those sources will appear. If you go to add a source down at the bottom, you'll have um, SRT streams, but also Zoom participants down here. And once you add those participants, then you can do things like throw them inside of boxes. So I put these two, uh, those are both me, <laughs> Guy Cochran and Guy Cochran. Then uh, I can cut between... You know, like here's a um, a three up, and then here's a single kitchen, and then here's the multi view that's coming in via Zoom. So these two are Zoom, and then uh, this is a a local huddle cam, and then I got Jonas coming in via SRT. He's at a, probably about a two second delay. So cool stuff uh, for the I think it's forty two bucks a month. It's not bad because they always had SRT output. Um, so you could do SRT here, but they didn't have SRT input. So that's one of the new, the new cool things. So it's exciting. It's exciting to see these uh, integrations. Memo Live's working now. VMix 27 beta is released, and that has Zoom integration. So it's cool to be able to do what we've been doing here in office hours, which is doing these cool super sources within software and for cheap. So excited Ale- to try some oh. more. Alexander Knight. Yeah, I was I was digging through the product pages to try to figure this out. Maybe you know, Guy. Do you, in addition to just having a regular Zoom uh, subscription, do you need do you need to pay for any additional service to have this Zoom integration? No. If you want uh, 1080, so um, I noticed that that camera that was of my kitchen is my Facebook portal, and it would only pull a 720p feed out of it. But that was due to the camera limitation. If I had a, a normal Zoom account that was 360, it would be limited by that. So you still are limited by the host account as to what feeds you can pull. And it is a maximum of eight. So we couldn't do this show with one instance of Wirecast. We would need two instances to be able to do a show to pull in all, all of, anything more than eight. And that's the limitation on vMix as well and on Memo. If you want more, the only thing is Zoom ISO or Zoom Rooms uh, to be able to pull this off. All right. Hopefully, Guy, that took care of everything you wanted to message out. Let's go to the next question. And it's another QR drop question coming in from Michael Dickman in Munich. Hi, can Mr. Fenwick or somebody else please explain how to connect the Kong Nano Control 2 with the SoundDesk audio software on a Mac? Thank you. I think that's Korg. They're an yeah. old-time music They're vendor for a long time. They're calling it Korg. Yeah, I Chris. call it Kong, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. The Kong, the King Kong. Uh, yeah, I can I can show you, Michael. Um, so uh, essentially, what you have to have here is here's your uh, audio de- or your sound desk software, and this is how I have mine broken down. Down here, this little tiny gear here. If you click on that guy, you get this little pop down menu, and you get to select your MIDI disc control. Um, I, I'm sure. Uh, there are music people that can go into this much more um, in much more detail. I have it set for CC protocol, and once you do that, you'll it'll pop up here. Now, once you get that going, you have to download. Hey, look, that's me. Hi. Um, you have to download this Korg uh, controller software, and essentially, what happens is all of these little numbers. And it's a little bit of a mess. 
coincide with these numbers here. So my faders start at zero, and if I come down here, here's my faders zero through seven. And then the pan controls start at 16, so if I come up here to the pan controls, it goes like that. So anyway, you dial in all that stuff. There's other buttons here which you may or may not be able to take advantage of. But between this mess of numbers, this mapping here, and changing this to uh, the CC protocol, that should get you up and running. Uh, play with it. Uh, it's. I, I will say I'm not good at learning new things. I did this on my own. So I... I would imagine most anybody in this group can figure it out if I can figure it out because I'm kind of adult. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy that explanation. You're pretty. You've, you've, I've seen you do some very sophisticated things. I, you know, this is the world we live in now: software as um, analogs for hardware, and going into menus and finding things. Sometimes, you know, just explore, explore, explore. Hopefully, they've designed the software such that you can't I, kill anything. I will say this, Bill, that. Um, there are many of us, uh, Mr. Lenti, who want to immediately throw gear and cables and patches and, and things. And I get the comfort of that. I come, you know, most of us are over a certain age. That's what we did. We piled up boxes and, and cabled them together. Is there a reliability in that? Sure. Sure there is. I am thoroughly fascinated with the idea of doing everything, what I call, in the box. Like, I want to keep it in the box. I can remember even in back in 2020, we were talking with, um, oh, I apologize. I always, uh, it's Mickey's friend from uh, the Nordic countries uh, who looks like Leland Scalar. I apologize. I'm Greg Curta. Curta. Greg Curta. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and he was like, he got me with a Leland Sklar reference. <laughs> why would I want to, why would I want to do that? Why can't I, why don't I just plug this into this? And I, and I pushed him a little bit harder on it. And I said, you know, think of this as a patch bay and think of this as, you know, a mixer. And it was a couple of months later, he was like, oh, I finally got it. Cool solution. So I love the idea of doing it all in the box. Um, and ironically, there's still like a thousand cables on my desk, but that's, a, that's probably another problem. This really resonates with me because I'll never forget, I had to go do a remote job in Las Vegas at NAB one year, and it was the first time I had ever done video over IP as opposed to video on BNC connectors and audio on XLR connectors. And I remember the frustration of my first day because I would take a, a line, you know, this is camera three, and I would plug it in and nothing would show up. And I remember thinking, what is wrong? I've done something wrong. There's no signal there, blah, 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 blah. And then I went to ask somebody for some help, and they just said, well, I don't have time right now. So I went back, and there was the signal. And I realized that unlike all of my former training of you plug in a connector and the signal is either there or it's not, I was in a new era of video over IP where you plugged in the cable, but then there had to be a whole series of negotiation steps behind the scenes for that thing to lock onto the signal and display it. And I had to, I had to go through a period of time where I was unlearning so many of the basic assumptions that I had about signal flow and connectivity. And I think I'm still doing it to today. And so it's just an evolution you have to make because things work differently now. It is not the same as we did before everything was IP based. And, 
you know, the young people coming up now, well, they'll experience this new thing and it'll be normal for them, for us. Well, one last thing. Age. If somebody yeah. does make a product called the Kong Nano Controller, <laughs> let me know. I want one of those. There is a dog treat device called a Kong. It is a very hard rubber, odd looking thing, but you can fill it with peanut butter and dogs love it. So Kong is taken. That's that's already out of it. All right. Let's. We're, uh, oh, I have to note that you can still get your questions in. We look forward to your questions. They are what drives this show. So use the QR code over here on the side. Uh, type in officehours.com or use the regular Mukana system. We appreciate your questions and are always looking forward to more. And vote on the questions that are up there already. All right. That, that done. Let's move to the next question. Uh, yeah, the Kong ball. My dog uh, goes crazy. Uh, next question coming in from Richard Lavery in Belfast, UK. Just wanted to highlight this build from DSLR Shooter for the community. Not just a lovely combination of devices, but such a great video on how to put it all together. Going straight onto my Kit B list. Well, there you go. Courtney, did you take a look at this? I took a brief look at it. I didn't get a chance to watch the whole video. It looks kind of like a combination of if uh, if your Roadcaster Pro and your A10 Mini got together and had a baby. Uh, it might look something like this uh, because it's the uh, Re- Mini Road Streamer X. Look at how cute that is. With a Ninja <laughs> Ninja recorder, Ninja 5. I'll show you a list of what it is. There's a 3D printed uh, bracket here that holds this, and it holds a 2.5-inch uh, SSD uh, behind the monitor, which then you have this interface that goes SATA to USB-C, and that plugs in uh, to the Ninja, I think, as a recorder. Uh, so it's uh, the list of equipment that's needed here is uh, you need your Rode Streamer X, your video dock, uh, your Atmos Ninja 5, a Samsung SSD interface, a Samsung SSD, and then a SATA to SATA, and then a SATA to USB Type-A, or a SATA to USB Type-C, and an angled SATA cable and a small rig cable clamp. That will, uh, uh, you have to put all of that stuff, sorry, what, what happened to me there? It's glitch time. Uh, you put all that stuff together, and uh, you end up with the uh, the baby, the baby streamer, and that uh, the roadcaster, that roadcaster uh, streamer X is designed to take eight uh, a single HDMI in, and it has uh, an HDMI out, so you feed that into the Ninja to record, and it also does the stream streaming, so it has an. USB output that shows up as a webcam, so you can use it as a streaming device as well. Like I said, really cute. Did Very he have a, a retail build price on it? How much did he have to spend on all that stuff? Uh, I didn't. Just like a four thousand dollars <laughs> solution, or is it? Let's see. There. No, he he doesn't say what the price is. I guess it depends on uh, market price of those individual pieces wherever you can get them. Makes sense. Yeah, Chris Fenwick, you had some that's thoughts. Good. That's good. Good math. I was wondering, Courtney, do you have like an RSS feed that sends you a ping anytime somebody posts something that requires something to be 3D printed? I just have that in my YouTube stream. You know, it just shows up. Oh, look at this device. There you go. Mitchell. A DSLR shooter does some great stuff, has a great way. I think his name is Caleb. Um, Just a wonderful uh, place to go. And we should post his his link on event chats so folks can follow him because he's fun. Oh, there you go. So hopefully that helped you, Richard. Uh, it is a very cool-looking little thing. It would be lovely to travel with, I would expect. Let's go to the next question. 
From Scott Hancock in Tokyo, and it's a question coming in on our QR drop, streaming from a location where the only connection is cellular, any experience with the Peplink line of multi-SIM routers? Rental cost is much more than just putting a separate hotspot on each of four to five computers for redundancy. Jason, break this down for us. I don't have any direct experience, but I can tell you the reason that the cost is so much higher is because of the carrier aggregation functionality of the PEPLINK. The, the, um, the difference between several carriers being able to be intermingled together and then kind of detangled on the other side is, is remarkable technology. And I'll let Guy take it from here. Guy, drop in. Yeah, I don't have direct experience either. Uh, I, I did phone a friend and I'm seeing stuff pop in. I, I do know that um, Keurig, Jonas, and Tucker all have multiples of these units. And the key is the Speed Fusion software that runs, they run it up in the cloud. So it, there is something that you need to put it back together. So cellular one, two, three, they all feed their signals up. And then based on the connectivity, you'll see a graph that shows uh, what's hitting what and it'll it'll delegate more bits to that carrier that's got the best signal. So it's not just uh, speed, it's latency as well. So it does a combination and they've gotten some really, coupled with the Epifan um, Pearl Nano running in H.265, which halves the bandwidth, they've gotten some signals out of some rough locations with that combination of four modems. And I was really impressed at CES to go to buy their booth because I have a small PEP link that ran our alarm system uh, that was for backup, and it was just two SIMs. And then I was surprised to go to CES and see that they had all the way up to eight SIMs. And I was like, how much is that one? They're like $8,000. I was like, what? So you can rack up some, so if, if for government and some of these guys, like Keenan has the disaster group, if you're also looking at these things, it's uh, another model. If, if you don't want to spend the money, his is, is two two gigs, I, I believe, a month. But then if you need more than that, you're just paying as you go over. So you want to be careful of, of the carrier cost because setting all this stuff up, it's a pain to go into Verizon, go into AT&T. It's much better just to pay somebody or rent them because uh, like during COVID, I left all those services on and I, I paid a fortune in all of these uh, services to leave them on. And finally, when I turned them off, I mean, 18 months had gone by and I didn't use any data on those things. So you could imagine the bills at 100 bucks, 100 bucks, 100 bucks, 100 bucks for all these different modems. So uh, yeah, much better to rent and um, utilize somebody else's services if you're not doing this all of the time. Wow. That, that, impressive that that capability, though, exists out there. Chris Fenwick, you had a note? At the risk of sounding a little bit like a shill, and here I go. Uh, also, Keenan's system, where um, you get a, a pretty good price for the data, the two gigs or whatever it is uh, each month. When you do go over, you're buying at a bulk rate, so it's much cheaper than what any you know somebody off the street can go and buy data rate at. Um, I think he, yeah, Keenan's doing well with that product. Well, and I would hope so. He spent so much of his career in public service uh, doing emergency communications out in the midst of very snowy and dangerous conditions. So to be able to get a signal out of some place uh, when people's lives and health and safety are on the line, it, it, big deal. So if the rest of us who are doing entertainment programming and stuff like that can benefit from the research that are coming, that's coming out of that, nothing but a good thing. Guy, you had a follow-up? 
Yeah, I, I did the phone a friend thing and uh, Jonas says it, it's much more than just having a separate hotspot. It's how does it fail over gracefully because you want this stuff to smoothly fail over to where you don't actually drop the signal and see it on the picture. So that's the benefit of having these aggregated uh, in, with software or hardware that's specialty for this, not just having a secondary hotspot because yeah, you might drop the stream and then in a minute, if, if you're down for a minute, you are going to lose more than half your audience. So that's the thing is you, if you're doing this for a big event, you want to make sure that you have the right tools or hire an outside agency to just go ahead and help you with that connectivity because it's, it's worth it to keep all your viewers if you go through all that uh, setup for a production. Absolutely. Serge, you wanted to hop in on this? Yeah, I just want to mention that that reliability is just, just the software on the device. Remember that these kind of aggregation needs at the other end on the internet, something to grab all that uh, feeds. So it's all coming from the same IP address. So that's why it's transparent for the uh, the failover. Ah, okay. So there's. It sounds like there are a lot of very technical moving parts in here to to maintain uptime, not have dropouts, and so if you need this kind of service, uh, it's it, it's fascinating that we can talk about this kind of stuff and bring it out to a wider audience because somebody may need this at some point, and it may be a matter of life and death. Let's move to the next question. Moving on with Douglas Carmichael asking the Black Lion Audio Revolution six by six can connect to an iOS device via USB. Could it be a solution with an Aspedif Avio for low latency connection of an iOS device to a Dante network? Alexander, start us off here. Well, I might. I mean, seeing how this is a class compliant device, it should just work when you plug it into the to the USB-C port. The only question is, now I looked at Avio's line of adapters. I did not see one with a Spidif uh, slash RCA jack on it. I just saw one with an AES XLR connector. So if that's the case, then you may need a uh, AES uh, to Spidif converter box. Hosa makes one that's, I think, 150 bucks or something like that. And then um, the other question would be routing. So you'd probably need a digital audio workstation. So you may need something like Logic Pro on an iPad in order to uh, select what is going out through that um, digital output as well. Mitchell. Yeah, I'm reading this question a little differently. It looks like he wants to get to an iOS device to a Dante network, and all you need is one of these uh, Dante Avio uh, USB-C or USB-A. I've got both of them, and I have them plugged directly into my computer, and uh, that's all you really need. You don't really need that Black Lion audio revolution but if you had to have one of those for any variety of other reasons, I would recommend you go with an RME device, an ADI-2 Black Edition is what I'm using right over my shoulder here. And that has all kinds of outputs, including an AES output on it, which could be plugged into the aforementioned Avio. Jason. Yeah, there are two ways to get really low latency um, iOS to Dante. The first way is Bluetooth, and that's two-way, automatically, easily. I've never seen it fail. The other way to do it is to plug in if your iOS device has USB-C, just um, plug the Dante device directly in and use um, PoE over um, for your for your Ethernet connection, and that'll power the device, and you're good to go. Just be sure that your battery can take it. Courtney. 
Uh, yeah, I haven't used this device, but uh, I was going to say it does have, uh, it only has two uh, analog inputs, two mic, mic uh, line inputs on the front. And on the back, it does have uh, SPDIF inputs uh, right there, input and output. And it has word clock input and output. And it has USB-C out to your computer, so you could use that into your uh, iPad or your iOS device, I suppose. And an OTG, just an external uh on the go USB port, a USB C port. I gotta get that bounce fixed. Uh, it's for connecting uh, other USB interface devices into it. Douglas, hope that answered your question. It, Let's well, I don't off. think it has oh, Dante built in. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, so you still need the Avio or some equally right. uh, translator to get to Dante? All right, yeah, no enough. Dante. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, the cool braided cable that comes with the X-Real glasses is the only one you can use. What makes it special? And can you use it as a charging cable with other devices? X-Real doesn't charge. It's without a battery of any kind. Guy Cochran, start us off. Yeah, so the cable that's included, it just looks like it's a USB-C data cable. The only cool thing about it is that it's specially curved for the curvature of plugging it into the glasses themselves. So I just took a regular Thunderbolt. I grabbed one from my Sonnet box over here and uh, plugged it in, and it works fine. So I have it plugged into my iPad right now, and I can see I can see an image on them, so it isn't the only cable. I do know that there is a difference, though, between the USB-C data cables and charging cables for sure. Uh, even my son just bought a Dodge Ram pickup truck, and he tried using a USB-C cable to get his Android thing going on, and it wouldn't work. And I said, no, 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 you need a data cable. Here's a data cable. Give it a try. And he plugged it, and he's like, oh, that solves it. So he went ahead and ordered yeah. one on Amazon. So that, that's the thing is you, you got to read the read the label. And a lot of times they'll have a, a little symbol on them, like these Thunderbolt ones have the little Thunderbolt, uh, and that's how you know they're guaranteed to pass data as the ones with the little Thunderbolt symbol on them will work uh, very well. Somebody, I can't remember whether it was on this show or someplace else, uh, put up a list of all the different Thunderbolt USB-C protocol possibilities and all the logos that go with them. It is a bit of a nightmare out there. So, Courtney, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I was the one that put that up. I don't have it handy here, but there's multiple forms of USB-C to USB-C cables, and they have to handle, there's some that handle power only, there's some that handle power and data at different rates, you know, and then there's some that handle power, data, and video. This has to hand, handle power, data, and video, obviously, because it's feeding video into the glasses. So it has to be compliant with at least those three. And uh, as uh, was mentioned by Guy, the one that comes with it has the special curve on it so that you can use it without it pulling the glasses off your face because of the stiff cable. Yeah, I'm actually exploring this right now because I had a couple of problems last week, and I think it might end up... I'm using Thunderbolt 3 cables that are certified and have that little thing on there, but I'm thinking, do I have to dump everything and go to Thunderbolt 4 because something was glitching, and maybe... Now, maybe it's a bad connector. Maybe a cable's gotten bent or something like that. But boy, I went to price out replacing them, and Thunderbolt 4 cables are not inexpensive. I think they were averaging somewhere between $30 and $60 per per cable. So you have to replace four or five of those. It's a couple hundred dollar adventure. But as the the spec continues to evolve, the higher level cables generally, I think, are backwards compatible. Plus, you get guaranteed that you can get up to the top of the specs. It's just a whole new world. Ah, next question. 
Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, try it out a new 40-millimeter full-frame lens that seems to mimic my normal vision perfectly. Are there normal lenses, or are we all a little different between wide distortion and optical compression? Well, everybody has different eyesight to start with. And then the other piece of that is um, what is normal? Um, what is um what is a field of view, different lenses, but also different sensors. The geometry of get passing light through a lens and hitting a sensor is also going to change somehow uh, how much of your field of view it is. Uh, you know, obviously, if you take a, a full-frame sensor camera and a micro four-thirds camera and point them at the same thing, you're going to get a very different field of view out of those two things. And then so it it there's always a if you think something is the right thing for you the only thing you can this is what i found the only thing you can really do is put the lens up put it on the camera you're going to use set the shot you're going to do um, you know, set up your monitor correctly because also the the raster rate of your laptop will sometimes determine how much you see on it. It's just a lot of things working together to make that work. So my my advice is test, test, test. Don't do it in theory. Do it in practical. Guy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, in photography school, I was always taught that uh, on a 35 millimeter camera, that 50 millimeter was real life. That that was the equivalent. And uh, having a 24 to 70 as my kind of go-to lens, I would start at 50 and that seemed to, you know, not change any facial characteristics. There's no bowing, no distortion. So 50 is, is what you would see as uh, considered a normal. You keep hearing about the nifty 50s and I think everybody, that's one of the starter lenses that everybody goes to. I think for exactly the reason Guy is suggesting. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to mention the same thing in film school. 50 millimeter lens was a normal lens for 35 millimeter. Uh, however, these days, since we have a 16 by 9 aspect ratio for a lot of stuff, maybe the 40 millimeter fills your uh, field of vision uh, for in the 16 by 9 format. Maybe it'll take that little wider lens to get out to the wider frame. And now that they've opened the sphere and it's so cool, maybe we'll end up with everybody looking 180 degrees in the future. Who knows? Let's, let's move to the next question. David Brady from New York, New York has a question. Some odd anomalies on my, anomalies on my iPhone when trying to monitor live streams from that Sunday place I attend. Audio sounds like a sample rate mismatch, but via computer, all is well. The same is true for video on demand. I'm lost. What could be the issue? Any ideas? This is always difficult to try to diagnose something, but we're going to give it a shot here. Jeffrey's going to start us off. Jeffrey? So, yeah, the easiest thing to do is just the standard uh, troubleshooting. First of all, are you watching through the apps, uh, through the Facebook app, through the YouTube app, or are you wa watching through uh, Safari or Chrome or another uh, web browser on your phone? If, uh, if you are, whatever you're doing, you could do the other to see if that works. The next thing is to just completely uh, close out of the app and close out all the apps. Just go through and do the swipe uh, to get all those apps uh, turned off and then and then go back in. I know that there's a couple apps that I run. Uh, Top Director is a perfect example, uh, which is NDI. And then if another Top Director app or another NDI app is running in the background, then it causes problems there. So do that. And then of course, do the full uh, full restart of the phone to see if that makes a difference. If you're running through YouTube uh, and Facebook, uh, I, I don't see any problems with that. Uh, so it, it would probably most likely be another app is, is causing the, the hang there. Guy. 
Yeah, in addition to checking that 48 kilohertz is across the chain, the other thing that uh, I had bite me at our Sunday place during the pandemic was we had a Teradek encoder and I was getting all these pings that the audio was really low. And I'm like, I'm monitoring it right here on my iPad Pro and I'm listening to it and it sounds great. And I was like, well, maybe I should just mimic what they're doing. So I, I asked her what she was listening on and she was listening on a on a um, iPhone. So I grabbed my iPhone, pulled it out of my pocket and sure enough, the audio was low. So I jumped into the uh, Teradek settings and I looked at the uh, audio and there was a choice for uh, audio one and two and then you could also mono it. So I dropped it to mono and sure enough, that's what it was. It was that uh, there was some kind of phase thing going on where because the speaker on an iPhone is a single channel, it, when it folded it down, it somehow was uh, phase canceling out and making it so that there was some uh, low level. So that's something else to check is, is not only the whole chain, but also to see how it folds down and if there's any kind of phase cancellation going on. Yeah, big deal. Cone filtering can be your enemy there. And yeah, and it's, well, good. Hopefully, David, uh, that's something you can take a look at. We'll move to there. Next question. It's from John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. What is it about Pluggable's Display Lake USB to dual HDMI adapter that causes streaming video services to blank out their player windows? Serge, start us off. Well, remember first that Display, uh, display Link Pluggable are not like real extension of the display or the graphic card that you have on your computer. It's virtual graphic card. So they are using CPU with a driver to generate that graphics. And that's another reason why the DRM might not work on these kind of pluggable device. Uh, Jeffrey Powers. So it, first of all, it also depends on if you're running PC, if you're running Mac, if you're running PC, make sure that, or whatever you're running, make sure that you've got a proper USB-C port that you're plugging into. I know that there's some computers out there that are using the USB-C uh, port because of the standardization, but if you look at the USB-C port, it's actually USB-C 2.0 or 3.0, the first generation of 3.0. That can always cause a problem right there. Uh, some of the video services that might come in, you might be dealing with uh, with copyright, with uh, uh, H, I always mess up the acronym, HDCP, whatever. And uh, you can, uh, you might have to worry about that. Uh, I would do some standard stuff, once again, uh, like a YouTube channel or something like that. Bring that video in and see if it works from there. Make sure it's plugged into a decent port with it that has enough out of there. And of course, if you're plugging into a dock to plug into the pluggable, then you might want to go straight into the computer from there. Chris Fenwick. I would agree with uh, Jeffrey, uh, John. It's almost certainly the HDCP. I think that's what it is. Uh, it's, it's copyright. And I will say this that the um, over the last uh, six to 12 months, I know that my system has changed. I used to be able to run movies on my Mac mini and pipe it into a Zoom meeting and sit around with friends and watch movies together. And all of a sudden I couldn't do it one day. So something got updated, something got improved. It broke the hole in the system. Um, but it's almost certainly that's what it is. It's not. It's not the uh, the pluggable's fault. It's it's all the software trying to keep you from doing things you shouldn't do. Courtney Gooden. Well, it could be HDCP, and it also could be some of these players, in order to achieve uh, high speed and glitchless playback, will try and write directly to the video RAM. Uh, used by your display adapter. And since the pluggable is a virtual video card, it may not be seeing that correctly, so it can't 
right to the video RAM of the pluggable since it's out over the USB port. So that may be why what the problem is. Depends on who wrote the uh, uh, player driver, uh, the drivers and the player, the player's uh, interface software might be causing the problem. It could also be DRM if the uh, information that you're trying to stream is got the copyright bit set. Serge, you want to come back and do a quick? Sure. Uh, about the HTCP, uh, Jeffrey, as he said, you can try with YouTube. YouTube doesn't use HTCP. So if you got your YouTube video, you know for sure it's probably the HTCP. And at that point, another recommendation is just to use a small HDMI switch that will let the HTCP uh, be copied from another device and let it go through. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, how can you explain the concept of cognitive load to a non-technical person? Let's try this quickly. Jason. I'm going to start with the technical answer. The cognitive load is the amount of information our working memory can process at any given time. And here's a really easy way to demonstrate it. This is called the Stroop effect. So if the red is colored red and the green is colored green and the purple, etc., it's easy. Try doing a fast read of something like the purple being green, the red being brown, etc., etc., and you will feel very quickly what cognitive load is. Uh, Mitch? Yeah, we run into it all the time as readers. I'm sure Bill uh, will echo this sentiment, is reading ahead before you actually say the words. And you can always do so much. So I would refer to cognitive load as the buffer that uh, you're able to maintain in your head when you're thinking about numbers or reading copy or dealing with it. Some people actually call it bandwidth. Like somebody will say, I don't have the bandwidth to do that kind of work today. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, it's uh, you're taking in too much information from too many sensor sources to process in real time. And so it's buffering in short term memory in your brain. And then to remember it, it has to be transferred later to long term memory. Uh, so it's kind of like a buffer overflow. If you're a nerd, <laughs> you'll know about uh, serial interfaces and incoming data goes into a buffer. And if you have the incoming data going too fast, it's going to overflow the, the uh, buffer and it's going to be lost. So, and I, I always have this, uh, I have this theory about cognitive overload and uh, subtitles, uh, which a lot of people are watching on movies these days. And some people say, well, I can't hear them, uh, hear the, the dialogue very well, so I have to have the subtitles on. Well, if you're reading the subtitles, you kind of stop processing the hearing the words, so you can become addicted to reading subtitles, and then your brain stops processing audio. So if the audio words are going into your brain and your brain is translating those that aud auditory sound into words, and your eyes are reading the words at the same time, usually only one of those gets processed uh, because of cognitive overload. I always consider cognitive load as the cheesecake fa factory menu syndrome. There's just too much to look at. I'm not ordering. <laughs> so that's that's how I process it. Uh, let's go on to the next question. And it's another question coming in from our QR drop from Jeremy Horn in the San Francisco Bay Area. X-Real users on the panel. How does the see-through pass-through work? Is there possibility of using it as a HUD? Guy has his, he was on his face a minute ago. Guy, what say you? 
Yeah, I was just testing them out again to see how bright it was versus how dim. When you put them on, it does dim your environment and it, it, depending on how bright you have it because there is a brightness setting. So there's an up and a down to, so I tried to make it less bright and it's still hard to see stuff. It's not like the the Microsoft HoloLens where it really can draw the picture over the top. Um, it, it's cool, but it's it, it seems to be kind of overwhelming as far as the brightness. It wants to take over your environment. I did watch over the weekend just to compare the, the Meta Quest 3. There's like a TikTok challenge going on where when people, they say do everyday household chores with the Meta Quest on and, and having like a YouTube video playing. And it puts these artificial hands in front of you as if they're your hands. Really, really bizarre. You guys should watch some of the videos, but that's how they're overcoming it because those ones are fully, you know, encased. So the difference with um, with these ones is that when you have them on, what I wind up doing, especially if I need to look down to type something, uh, um, is I just look down below and look at my environment. So I'm able to see things on my desk. It's just through that it gets really dim because there's layers inside, and especially when, it, when it's on and it's bright. But I'm surprised at the excitement of these things. I can't believe how many people reached out to me and said they got a pair and they love them and they're amazing, especially for uh, watching uh, high quality footage like uh, Alex was saying over the weekend. He watched some Apple TV with his and he was pretty impressed with it. And then Jeremy Horn contacted me and said that the three screens is amazing, which I haven't done that yet. Three screens on a Mac Book Pro is amazing. So you get one, two and three. So you can you can shift your head around and see the different screens in your environment. So that's pretty cool. I can't wait to try that out. Next question. Next one in from Serge Blondin from Montreal, Canada, and right here on our panel. Talking about too many cables on my desk, any recommendation for short HDMI cables, 4K if possible, threaded or flat? Alexander, help him out. Yeah, so they're not flat, but Condor Blue makes some really high-quality stuff that's three feet and below, you know, just like little short, nice braided cables uh, to hook up your, um, you know, to go from your camera to your Atomos recorder, that kind of stuff. So I would have a look at Condor Blue, really like their quality of cables. Um, I also use Roland's uh, Black Series HDMI cables. Uh, they are quite chunky, I will warn you, but uh, they are incredible build quality and nice, solid, heavy uh, uh, connectors. And I've never had a single problem with a Roland cable. We've still got a bunch of questions here, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, go next question. John Foltz from Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania. Having mentioned vMix 27, has anyone used it with the new Zoom integration? Is this better than Wirecast? So far, nobody has raised their hand uh, on the panel for this question today, which means that somebody probably doesn't. We don't have much of anybody with direct experience. Oh, Guy, Guy weighed in. Guy, what do you know? I don't have direct experience, but again, the guys on, on my, my cloud squad, we call them, um, they've been beating on it. I just haven't had an instance to fire up and, and uh, mow down because basically it's beta software. So I, the, the one I have is production. So you, you want to be careful about installing beta software on your on your production machine. So you need to fire up another instance. But the guys that are using it are saying that it's solid and that it's great. The only thing that I would say is compared to Zoom ISO, you don't get that higher bit rate too. So there is something called high bandwidth mode, which is limited not only on um, um, vMix, but on Wirecast, MemoLive. So all the third-party ones are not going to get that super high bandwidth mode to get the 16 people. So if you need 16 people, um, you're still back to Zoom ISO or a Zoom room. Uh, so be a little careful, but it is worth playing with. And I think that they there is a great video on um, IBC from vMix 
at IBC showing it off. Uh, there's some other great features of vMix 27 as far as controls with a stream deck as well, with being able to use the dime, the, the little dials to make some moves and, and uh, it's super powerful. So I can't wait to try it. I just can't say that I've had the direct experience, but now it's on my to-do. Okay, next question. Eddie Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, what is your fun camera? Testing out an A7CR today got me wondering about panelists and cameras for enjoyment. Mitch, what say you? I use a stunt cam or enjoyment camera. It's my Sony uh, ZV-E10. Um, it's, it's relatively inexpensive. The lens on here is worth more than the camera itself. But if you just need a camera to pick up and just start shooting with it or shooting video with it, it's just uh, simple and easy to do. For me, my iPhone, hands down. Put it on the end of a monopod and go out and have fun. I occasionally do that just for the sheer enjoyment of it. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, asking, Google vows to defend users of generative AI tools in Google Cloud and Workspace from copyright claims. Microsoft, Adobe, and others have made similar pledges. Discuss. Courtney, start us off. Well, this will put some big money and big lawyers behind all the copyright claims that are going to be starting to be filed by all the intellectual property owners that are going to start squawking about AI. So hopefully that will put an end to a lot of those uh, cases that will eventually get dismissed from court uh, now that the big boys are behind defending it. So I'm looking forward to that happening. Ah, lawsuits. There will be lawsuits. That's my prediction. Next question. James Fosley from Minneapolis, Minnesota. If Melee Computer keeps giving me BSOD errors, phase one initialization error, and driver verify DMA violations, do I cut my losses and toss? Is the blue screen of death back? Jason, what say you? Yeah, probably. Um, it's bad RAM or bad motherboard, so um, make your own assessment. Courtney? Yeah, you might uh, look if it's a fanless one. Uh, you may be running it in too hot an environment, and that can cause blue screens of death. So stick a fan across the top of it and see if that makes the problems go away. If it is, then you, you've got it uh, too tight a situation where it's not getting enough airflow to cool it. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, I've read that it's always recommended to run keyboards through a DI box live. Uh, would that have any benefit even if the keyboard has a balanced output like the Yamaha Montage and Roland Phantom? Uh, Jason, help us out. Yes. Okay, there we go. Uh, that's definitive. <laughs> so I've, you know, it, it, DI boxes are so common. So many people have them for on stage use that it seems like if you can get an extra layer, but, it, you know, balance is supposed to be balanced. It's supposed to be uh, just a, a solid well shielded from noise signal. So let's go to the next question. Next one from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. The Microsoft Activision deal closure shows that tech giants can still grow by getting vertical mergers through courts and regulators relatively unscathed. Discuss. Uh, no. Oh, there. Courtney has popped in. Courtney. Discuss. Well, we don't. We normally don't discuss politics here, but I think it's it's more of a right leaning. Uh, court structure that we have at the moment, uh, which is always in favor of big business and less regulation. So I think they're squeaking all these things through. These big mergers are going through now. When uh, when it goes back, when the courts go back the other way, we might find more regulations coming back into effect. So, But right now, it's merger time. <laughs> 
and we're looking forward to it. Uh, good. I think we've taken care of our general question. Oh, no, we, we, we have not taken care of them. There's another one popped in. So, Mitch? Just just in, uh, Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California, has this question. What is better for shotgun mics, battery or phantom power? Well, you need one of the two of them if it is a mic that requires uh, power. Uh, I think they both can work equally well. I know I have shotgun mics or uh, hypercardioids as they're more, you know, they're really, I, I'm, I'm funky about the word shotgun because it implies like a shotgun pattern that the mic is going to reach out and isolate everything except what's directly in front of it the way a shotgun only sends its pellets out in one direction. And that just isn't how they work. They're all pretty much omni at low frequencies. And then as you get up into the higher frequencies they get more directional over time but um, they can work equally well I'm always more comfortable with phantom power because I've always had cameras and other things that have that but Courtney what say you uh, depends on the type of shotgun. If it's an electret condenser, which is requires a lower vol- voltage, like 5 volts, you can go with the battery and it'll last a long time. If it's uh, a real condenser microphone, like an RF condenser, like a Sennheiser, uh, it's going to take a lot more power, and 48-volt phantom is the way to go in those cases. You can get forty, you know, battery-powered 48-volt phantom power supplies, but the batteries don't last very long, so keep that in mind. Yeah, Mitchell. Yeah, my vote is for Phantom also because I've got a pair of uh, uh, Nakamichi shotguns behind me to have batteries in them, and those batteries are not coming out because I left them in there for a year, and they just expanded, and they're never coming out. Yeah, and, and, you know, if you have something that provides Phantom and it's a solid power source, and particularly if you're on shore power of some kind, every... every uh, board out there everything else understands 48 volt phantom power and will deliver it reliably so that's a no-brainer uh you get into different kinds of powering schematics and sometimes it's harder all right uh let's see what's coming up we've got a big week planned and so there are some things to talk about um On Tuesday, we are going to be dealing with lower thirds. That is one of the most used techniques in live broadcast. Um, You see them all the time. It's really just that little, sometimes they're called straps, that little bit of information, often in an interview that comes up and says, this is Bob Jones and he works for IBM and uh, he's the senior vice president or this or that. Comes up at the beginning when Bob first hits the screen, lets you identify who that is, what their title and expertise is, and then it goes away. So that's the lower third. So we'll be talking about those on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we're going to have a really interesting show. Live acoustics in historical spaces. I've run across this a couple of times in my career where I've had to go shoot something and uh, do audio. And when you have to do audio in a place that is uh, significant historical context, sometimes you don't have options of the right kind of power available. Uh, Sometimes you have to be very careful about not interrupting or messing with the historical environment that you're in. So Michael Holmes, who has been the artistic director of Washington's Cornet and Sackbutt Ensemble, those are early instruments, uh, since 1998, he's recreating historical performances of music in churches, chapters, 
and chambers of European courts. And it's interesting because he's going to talk about things like the fact that the organist in a church, sometimes the composers would write for the delay that came back. And it's just a fascinating subject. So we'll be talking about that coming up on Wednesday in our audio hour. Uh, On Thursday, we're talking camera sensors. We often talk about lenses, but the sensors themselves do make a huge impact on the quality of images. So we will be spending a lot of our time on Thursday kind of discussing how sensors work, the combination of the sensor and the lens and how that makes things look. Um, A lot to unpack there and a lot to deal with. So that's going to be on our show on Thursday. On Friday, our old friend Sam Messman is going to be here, uh, OWC uh, maker of the jellyfish. And so he's going to be revealing new additions to the jellyfish shared storage lineup as well as some larger topics, capture, create, collaborate, the new OWC ecosystem for all of that. So we're excited to nerd out around, uh, we'll be talking about Thunderbolt 5, we'll be talking about USB-C on the iPhone, uh, Apple connectivity, and really anything else in the world of storage or video workflows. So that is all coming up on on Friday. It is a jam-packed week as we go into things. We want to thank you once again for all being here. We're just about heading into our second hour, and we're really looking forward to this. I see Ian McCraig is in the the panel here, and Alex is standing by to set this up. So we'll be right back with the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour. Uh, It's my pleasure to welcome Ian McCaig to our show. Ian has been creating art and telling stories for over 40 years. His early artwork uh, included Jethro Tull's The Broadsword and The Beast and cover illustrations for Ian Livingston's Fighting Fantasy books. In 1990, Ian joined ILM and then Lucasfilm uh, to work on the Star Wars prequels where he created key concept art for characters like Queen Amidala, Darth Maul, Anakin Skywalker, and even Jar Jar. We'll talk about a little bit. Um, uh, his uh, his many concept credits include Terminator 2, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Charlotte's Web, Harry Potter, and the Goblet of Fire, uh, John Carter of Mars, and Guardians of the Galaxy. Ian brings storytelling to everything he does. Uh, he directed uh, The Face in 1998, which I actually got to be a voice on. I like to say the lead voice uh, of the of the of the, of the movie. <laughs> uh, his art, his his book uh, Shadowline illustrates literally, story as a key concept uh, for all art. Uh, Finally, Ian has been my friend for over 25 years. Uh, We met at Lucasfilm in the Star Wars art department, and Ian is the one key person that I call every time I'm thinking about story. Um, Ian will be uh, uh, talking at the Lightbox Expo in Pasadena, California next week. Welcome, Ian. Hey, so good to be here. And hello, all you faces who I have watched and heard and your radio presenters, every one of you. I grew up on radio theater and just listening to good voices speaking like you do is is a treat to me. So it's an honor to be here. It's so good to have you, Ian, and I'm really excited. You know, we, we waited for a little while. I was like, I got to make sure that all the bits and pieces are ready. <laughs> and and uh, so we're, we're really, really excited to have you. Um, when you, you know, uh, I think that one of the questions that I have is that, you know, uh, for some artists that that we work with, especially 3D artists and so on and so forth, they're not really thinking about story. They're just kind of executing what the director wants, you know, and and they're comfortable in that. And I think that when I got started, I really didn't have a a storyline in my head. I mostly just looked at things and said, what do I have to create? But do you think that story is a, a prerequisite specifically for concept art? I think stories are prerequisite for anything that is a storytelling medium. 
Um, yeah. Not that you have to know, because I, I think in in a great collaborative effort like a film, uh, everyone has a very specific job. And it's the director's job to really know that story, have a vision for it in their head, and communicate that to everybody. If you're wanting to stay that far back from getting involved in that side of things, you can just trust your director. And if it's a good director, that person will know how to guide you. Um, however, it's much, much more fun to actually know how a story works and to be able to uh, help your director out by uh, knowing what that character would need, right? Or knowing what that moment would need if you're storyboarding it. Um, so yeah, I think I think story's central to, to everything in those kind of mediums. It's central to life because we all live and die according to stories. When we're kids, we make up stories about who we are and what we're going to be when we grow up and who our friends are going to be and what we will, you know, just everything. You envision this life for yourself. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to make that come true. But every once in a while, something happens, you know, somebody gets elected that you didn't expect to get elected and your whole world spins around and you react in a way you didn't expect to react. And then you have to rewrite your story. And if you know how to write a good story, you can write a good life for yourself. If you don't, you're kind of at the mercy of what's going on. And how do you write a good story? You, you know what a hero is. You know what it's like to face uh, insurmountable obstacles. You, you know that as an artist, too, that you know, every morning you get up, you have to do five impossible things before breakfast. You do. And, and instead of panicking, you go, yes, bring it on. And then you do your 100 push-ups. And then you just dive in. And you don't worry that you don't know. The feeling of not knowing is actually quite pleasurable if you're, uh, if you're used to fear. How do you start to construct the story? So as you think about this, uh, like when you, if you, if you're going to sit down and create, is it, and, and I guess the question is, do you construct a story or do the stories come to you? You know, as, Oh my, <laughs> uh, well, the answer is yes. Yeah. It's, it's everything and, and anything St stories. Everybody has stories, right? There's something happened to you today, something happened right now. And you, you go and tell it as an anecdote later on and you don't worry about, how to construct that, you just know. It has a beginning, middle, and end, probably has a punch line at the end because you want them to laugh. Um, and then on a freeform version of that, there's your dreams. Every night you tell stories. You're worried about something. You enjoyed something. You want to remember something. And so your brain constructs these weird stories, mini stories, that really don't make much sense ex unless you're dreaming them. But they're still stories. So we're makes natural. sense at the time. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, right? Well, we're natural born storytellers. We, we just know that construct. If you want to get good at writing and, and uh, creating stories for yourself, uh, yeah, there's, there's zillions of advice books out there on the market on how to do that. There's Hero's Journeys. If you want a traditional three-act structure, there's, there's the well, history you define, of theater. I mean, because a lot of folks here are, are, are producers, but they're not, they, they haven't written a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. Can you define the, the three-act um, uh, stories sure. that we that's but, the, the most traditional but the the caveat is that there's every kind of story besides the three-act story and <clears throat> so many different kinds of things besides the hero's journey too um it, it's kind of like poetry right if you want to write a poem you can line do a rhyming couplet you can line line one with line three and line two with line four and hey it works as long as you hit the beats right well three-act structures like that, right? If you follow those beats, voila, at the end, you have a story of some kind. 
And it's, it's really simple. Act one, you put somebody up a tree. Act two, you throw stones at them. Act, sorry, act two, you throw stones at them. Act three, you bring them down again. Yeah. It's like a joke. It's a at the end. <laughs> I couldn't figure out storytelling. And, and, and I remember talking to Ian about this maybe 15 years ago. And, and uh, Ian said, he said, act one is get him up the tree. Act two is, or, or describe, act one is describe the tree. Act two is get him up the tree. Act three is get him down the tree. And they can fall out of the tree. They can be shot out of the tree. They can fly away from the tree, but they got to get out of that tree. You know, and, and uh, anyway, and it was, and it changed the way I looked at things. Just that one moment of what the, you know, how, how to do that. And, and, uh, and it's funny because now, like, I, I find that when I watch movies, if I watch them again, I'm like, I don't need the tree in again. So I just skipped to 41, 44 minutes. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> like, we're somewhere between 37 and 48 minutes. There's gonna, that's the end of act one, you know? And so, and so the, uh, and do you think that, um, that Hollywood in many ways has become too formulaic with the storytelling? I think that they're trying to mitigate risk and formulas look like they'll do that. The the thing though is that in the entertainment industry, when you get up on stage, <laughs> formulas don't help you at all. There is no guarantee the audience is going to clap. There's no guarantee that you're not going to bomb. Even the best entertainer in the world could bomb up on stage. And that's how it should be. There should be no guarantees. So you fly by the seat of your pants, you trust your gut. And unfortunately, there's so much money that gets into these things that to make financial sense, you have to give the illusion of mitigating the risk. So that's why we hire big stars. That's why we go to formulas that have worked before. That's why we test it on audiences, none of which really work. But yeah. um, it and, helps and get think the financing. Do you think that we need to back up a little bit as far as that goes? I mean, uh, one of the things, good uh, Gareth Edwards is a, is a good example of mm -hmm. did Rogue One and then shot all of the creator uh, on, on an FX3, like <laughs> a tiny little right. Sony camera, uh, yeah. you know, that, that Mitch is using as a webcam right now. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, but he shot the whole film on that. And, and one of the big things that he really did, wanted to work on is lowering that overall cost of production. Mm -hmm. And that, that was mm -hmm. one step in that area where now it's, it's hard. It's, I think he described the, the budget was like $80 million. So it's not like right. a nothing budget, right. but it was definitely dramatically lower than our typical robot environment you know it's, kind of thing but it gave him a lot more freedom to tell a story no it's true if if you can lower the cost you can get away with a lot more it's why independent films that are in the you know one to ten million dollar range get away with a lot more edgier storytelling um because they can actually afford to write that one off right yeah. or better yet you don't have to go through a studio that's i mean that is the miracle of today right that you literally have a film studio on your iphone Right. And that you can, on, on a mini little computer, you can do everything that a, a massive film studio could have done not too long ago. Um, and, and the special effects are becoming available to everybody too. So it's like, um, uh, my hope is that every one of us becomes a studio or that little yeah. groups of us gang together and learn how to make little films and start pouring those out there. And that's already happening. Yeah, and that's and I think the two is. It does feel like YouTube is waiting to have narratives. Like it's not, it has not been particularly successful. What works in mm -hmm. YouTube right, right now has mostly been historical or, or crazy mm -hmm. or absurd or, or informational, but not, it, it's just because it's hard, it, it's hard for people. I mean, I always, you know, like story is hard. Like it's, 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 it's something we do naturally, but not something we do naturally well, mm -hmm. you know? Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, and, 
the, I guess the question is when we set, talk about doing it well, um, how do you approach that? I mean, we, we're all storytellers, but a lot of times, you know, we all know we have family members that put too much detail into the story. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you no, can't hear sure. it or, or, or take too much out of it. Uh, what, <laughs> what is the, uh, um, you know, wh- wh- how do you figure out where to cut, where to end? Okay, so here's the thing. The main, the secret sauce, the main ingredient in any story or any creative endeavor is you. So there's no answer to that in a book. You have to get to know you. You have to find out who you are and, and what you love and how you see the world and what, you know, what makes you, you special, right? That weird combination of your history and your loves and hates and fears. When you have that, you can construct a story so it seems like it's solid, but it's going to lie there dead on the, on the slab. And if you want to bring it to life, you got to take that little piece of you out and put it in there. And that might break all the rules. The moment you put it in there might suddenly change everything. But now it's alive. And it doesn't matter if it's too long, if that's your way of storytelling. It doesn't matter if it's too short, if that's your way of storytelling. It comes to life, and that's what people want. They want authenticity. They want to see a real experience, and uh, that's what you give them. And you don't do that by learning from books. You do it by finding out who you are. Well, and, and but and now if you have a character that isn't you, how do you get into that character? How do you, you know, step into its skin and, and be that be that character to, to tell the story authentically for that character, which may not be you? Sure. That's that's uh, one of those easy tricks. And again, lots of answers. So let me give you two. First thing you do is find out who you are so that you know your range. Because um, I think the, the early exercise I did in an, in an acting uh, school by a really great director was he, he put a, a sort of cross on the ground and he said, okay, that end of it, that's high energy. This end is really low energy. That side over there, really positive. This side over there, really negative. Where do you, as a human being, belong on that cross? And then all, you know, all the actors would come up and we'd try and find our, our places on the cross. And of course, I'm positive and high energy, so I'm way over that corner. And everyone else is kind of gathered around the middle, except this one guy. And I look, and he's like my Auntie Ian. And he's way down there at the opposite side on the dark and negative side. And it's like, okay, now suppose you got angry. Where would you go? Well, right. I never really go to dark and negative and I never really go low energy and negative. Um, the best I can do is kind of uh, hap- happy, smiling, mad, which me, she says, is very scary. So um, I do my little arc on that cross, and I know, well, that's my range. That's what I have to, to offer. Now if I want to do something like Darth Maul, right, and he's supposed to be an icon of evil and a new Sith Lord and all that stuff, well, he's not not the one I designed, because I, I can't do that. Um, for me, he's cheeky, and he just wants to kick Jedi butt. He didn't care about the politics, you know? On comes Qui-Gon and, and Obi-Wan and two Jedis, and they're both taller than him, and he's like just standing there with his double-bladed lightsaber, and he can't wait to fight. Right. So that's high energy and joy, you know, but angry or mad or evil or whatever it is, but with a smile on his face. I know well, there's a smile. I painted and, it on his face. <laughs> Well, and, and, and the, uh, and, and in a lot of ways, um, you know, you explore those characters. I remember where Jar Jar had, was a lot more complex than what we saw in the movie. Oh my gosh, way more. You remember Jar Jar, poor Jar Jar. So I did not invent Jar Jar. I mean, George invented the idea. 
Terrell Whitlatch, one of the best creature designers in the world, uh, actually created him. Um, I was his nanny. And so back, back before there's a script, Jar Jar was silent. He couldn't speak. He had no voice. And so he was Charlie Chaplin. And that was joy. Because here's this, like me, he's this character with a lot of energy, but he can't get it out. It has to be in his language, body language, and what he's trying to tell you without words. And he was easy to do then because the great, the thing, the secret of life and the thing that draws your attention most is contrast. And a high energy character that actually can't speak is really interesting. And plus, if you remember, early, early on, Jar Jar came from a planet with um, a different gravity than all the other planets you see him on, sir. And he's got elastic bones. So every planet, he looks different. He was short and fat on some heavy gravity planets, and he was tall as a tree on other ones, and he kept changing all over the place. So he was a hoot. Uh, and then reality set in, and George realized, well, how much does it cost to do that to him? And does that help the story? And so we got rid of that idea. And then the script came along, and all of a sudden, he's speaking all this gobbledygook language. And we're like, oh, okay, okay. Uh, well, let's see how this works. And then the first person cast was a French Canadian called Michel Courtemange. I don't know if you remember right. him, but, uh, you know, he spoke with very, very strong accents. So and when he did the jaw jaw voice, it was, ah, yee, yee, yee. what is this? I remember and that. So I remember that test. It was so funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and, and, you know, and the funny thing is, is that, you know, I was one of the people up for that voice. And, um, you know, I think I got thrown <laughs> into a lot of it. And when, um, when, you know, I, my version of it, cause like you, I, I, uh, um, to do voices, I just get into the character. I look at the character, I yeah. feel the character and then I just do it, you know, and, and I, you know, the, uh, I don't have any, like, there's no technique for me. Mm. Like, there's no, like, I'm going to pull my voice up. I'm going to turn this thing over. I just do it. And when I saw Jar Jar, it was, you know, like, and it was just immediately dropped into that. And so is it, I guess a lot of times if for you, I guess, do you see characters that way? And then suddenly it all becomes somewhat obvious. Yeah. I, I try to say you always draw from the inside out, right? So you have to inhabit the character for funny story about that is late, late one night, well, to back up, um, George always seemed to be in love with the women that I drew. Um, and, and he, he, uh, he came up late one night when there's nobody in the art department except me, and I'm drawing one of my Padmes. And uh, I think at first he looked at Doug's things for a long time, and then, and then I forgot about him. And before I know it, he's standing beside my desk, and I'm, as I draw Padme, and, and he, he's just staring at her. Then he reaches down and he rips the drawing off my board, and he holds it up and goes, the question in Izzy, and who is she? Who is she? And, you know, when you're drawing, you're deep in, in truth land. And I just went, well, she's me, George. <laughs> and he kind of went, <laughs> I went, no, no, they're all me, Darth Maul, Queen Amy Dalla. And as he ran out of the door, he said, you need help. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's and, true. You draw, you draw all the characters as part of you. It doesn't matter right. what they are. They're all bits of you. Well, but, but then, and then some of it is, is reference. Like Anakin was really, you know, the, at least some of the core reference was, you know, from a, 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 an actor that just got too old for the movie, right? Yes. The guy who played young uh, Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Yeah. Do you remember yeah. he was taller than, than Obi-Wan and shaving? <laughs> <laughs> By the time he came in. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Well, well I, I do want to add for, for Jar Jar. He, so eventually he was cast to, to Ahmed Best and the world... 
uh, of that generation lashed out at him. The world of the next generation love him. So it's really yeah. it's really odd, right? This collision of generations. But well, and, and I think that what, uh, when it comes to the story, what, what happened is they they didn't let him go all the way. So when you were doing your voice, right. you were doing the Jar Jar that works, and right. eventually they let Ama do it too. There's something mm-hmm. called uh, Robot Chicken. Right. And there's a fantastic episode where Jar Jar finally meets Anakin again, but now he's Darth Vader. And he's like, he's doing the sort of frenetic voice you're doing. He's go, oh, Eddie, hey, so good to see you again. Huh? What's the matter? You, you cut yourself? And he pulls off the helmet and sees his totally burned head. And he goes, ah! <laughs> and just because he's dialed now up to, you know, past 10. Right. Um, it works. He's funny. He's really funny. And he worked perfectly. Yeah, it was Mama almost being... That. In some ways, it was being afraid of the character because there was yes. a lot of, yes, there was a lot of pushback. I think in the you know I think a lot of times we, I mean uh, when and this gets into like where things get hard when you're telling stories and you show it to other people for feedback, oh. and and there was um, you know when people you know there's scenes with Jar Jar that were much more over the top than what we saw in the movie, but right. there was kind of pushback of not not going yeah. that far. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy. You know, it's about feedback. You want to listen to anybody who gives feedback to your work because they're audience members. And if there's something that bumps them, that's something to pay attention to. The worst thing you can do is to actually listen to their suggestion on how to fix it. <laughs> right. Because they, they so, won't know. They're not you want to know how they feel, problem. but not how they And they're not they you. It. They're not you. And, and this is your story and you are telling it in a certain kind of way. And I think after, George is very good at resisting those kind of impulses, but I, I think... It's got to be hard too, right? Yeah. When your your friends, your closest mentors, and so on tell you this character's not working, and here's how to fix it. Temptation and under pressure is maybe sometimes to give in. I don't know if he did that or not, but um, it's a shame Jar Jar didn't end up being the robot chicken Jar Jar at first because everyone would have loved him. Or Charlie Chaplin, that would have worked too, I think. Well, and and so as you start to develop those characters, so you 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 have a story and you start developing the characters. How do you use the story to illustrate that? How do you use the story to pull? pull out what the who the characters are well let's see if it's a story someone else has written you start there right you you actually read the story you try to live it and try to imagine it um and then when you're drawing character you go what where are they on that journey and how are they different at the end than they were at the beginning and what is this moment here about what do i see and in the scene how are they different at the end of the scene than they were at the beginning of the scene so you you ask a lot of placement questions about it. it's all just it's like blocking when you're doing theater right yeah. um and then once you know that then you inhabit the character and you just play that moment out right and imagine you're there imagine you are that kind of character and i i disagree i think you're you actually have quite a range alex i've directed you you, you did a you did a voice of evil incarnate from a pit for a Disney thing for me once. Yeah. <laughs> and you have such a deep, beautiful, mellifluous, mellifluous voice. But um, I needed you to be canny and tricky. And, you know, you were a Brer Fox calling Brer Rabbit down the hole. And you, you did a really good job. I still have that. I can, I can show you someday. Was, I'd, love uh, to see, I'd love to see that. Yeah. The, the, you know, I, uh, I, I love doing character voices. I mean, I did character voices. Mm-hmm. That was before I got into graphics. So that's what I did. And I loved it because I got to put somebody else on for a little while. Like it just, yeah. and for me, it was, it had some of me in it, but it was like a whole different person. 
You know, like well, any, we're I get doing the, that now, though, Alex, aren't we? I mean, yeah. everybody's here as presenters, and it's you, but it's the you that presents. Right. It may not be the you that got up this morning. It may not be the you that talks to your partner and and you know your right. children. Yeah, exactly. But um, th- those are masks. We call them masks in in mime. And by the way, mime when I studied mime was a good thing. I studied over in Europe under someone called a lady called Nola Ray. She was amazing. And then I was shocked to discover that, that they are made fun of in this country. What is going on? Oh, they're but, so much fun. <laughs> but but the, the first thing they teach you is um, when you have a mask, you're invulnerable. She sat us in a big circle and then said, okay, I want you all to come into the center of the circle. And now I'd like you to act your deepest, darkest, saddest fear. I was like, what? So we're all self-conscious and getting in there and trying to over-emote and all that stuff, and, and everybody was terrible. And then she pulled in this giant basket of masks, and she said, okay, now I want you to hold one of these up in front of your face. Do it again. And the moment you do this, you're invulnerable. And right? is that because you see it as not you? Like anything that happens is not is not happening to you? Yeah, and no one can see as real you because you're hiding behind the mask. So when we present, we tend to pull out the mask even if it looks exactly like us and we're right. safe behind the mask, right? Because we know who that person is. We know the, the dynamics of that. No one can see really what's going on inside you. But of course, that's what story is. The story is about letting people in. So if right. people know how to read the stories, they know more about you than you ever wanted them to know. <laughs> right. I wonder, Which is fun. Wonder, that makes it's me fun. wonder who, who Christopher Nolan is. <laughs> he's, he's just a lot of... <laughs> well, you can kind of tell from the different filmmakers, especially yeah. if they've made enough films. Yeah. You can see, well, do they have, where are they on that cross? Do they have a really big range? Some people do. Do they have one story, but do they tell it really, really well? Um, right. There's a lot of those people too. Yeah. Good to find out who you are, right? Yeah. And by the way, I think it's really, really important not to be afraid of fear. Fear just tells you you've reached the end of your comfort zone. Right. And, right. you know, all the gold is out there beyond that boundary so if you see that try pushing past it because you might discover your cross is a lot bigger than you think it is absolutely let's, let's jump into the questions from the from the sure. panelists uh, mitchell ian thanks for being here i'm fascinated with the fact that you like radio personalities uh, i'm a 70s boss chalk on a big ah. radio station in philadelphia and i can't help thinking that you would be a great 70s radio DJ on like KHJ or <laughs> another, because you have Thank the energy you. that just comes through. But the other thing that's neat about it is the storytelling part is we really miss that old theater of the mind because in radio you could create any environment, do anything and yeah. make it happen. That's just cool. I grew up on that. I, I My dad made this, hand built this old, remember the old reel to reel tape recorders? The quarter inch tape. <laughs> that was that was part of my. Except, I didn't. I don't even remember. I don't. I not only remember them. I used to cut shows on them. So like. So did I. So did I with these pair of scissors and gluing the things back together. Yeah. It was so fun, but ever since I was little, like three years old, Dad would put this on, and it was gold. By the way, I don't know if it was gold plated or just looked gold. It looked like C3PO sitting up there, and as those dials, as big tapes spin, stories just spill out. Yeah. And I listened to, you know, Orson Welles. I listened to, that's how I first heard Superman. All kinds of great things back then. And that for me, that was way before television. It was before anything, even books. And I have always loved the theater of the mind, the theater of the voice. 
because you can have a cast of thousands, unlimited special effects. <laughs> well, and, and uh, you know, a, we're, a bunch of us are threatening to do some radio plays, so I'm, yes! we're definitely going to count me in. you for that. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeffrey, you got a qu- qu- question? Yeah, uh, so many little gems there. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to how if somebody could actually take Star Wars and redo it, where Jar Jar's lines are all gone, to kind of like. Garfield minus Garfield type uh, that would work. strip type thing. Sure. That would be a lot work. of fun. Uh, mm-hmm. My question is more on the uh, on the tree thing that because that that intrigued me the most because uh, you're dealing you're mostly dealing collaboration sometimes with somebody over you sometimes somebody with uh, somebody under you. What mm-hmm. do you do? Where? How do you work it when somebody thinks that you need to fall out of the tree before you climb the tree? Mm, okay. So if it's a collaborative environment, <coughs> excuse me, you have to know what your role is in that group first. And second, if you're one of the creatives, you have to remember, well, you've been cast and you've been cast for who you are. You're not just a wrist. And so um, if you treat your profession as a concept artist or as a storyboard artist or a storyteller of any kind, if you treat it as if you're the actor and you've been given the script and you have to portray this character, well, again, you have to do it from what's true to you. So you work, you work very hard to try and find something in you that answers that question. You don't give them what they ask you for. You give them what they need based on the script and based on the direction you've gotten, but it's your answer. And if they reject that answer, it doesn't mean it's not good. It just means that didn't fit with their vision. So you see what you get an adjustment or you try and figure out what their feedback means. And then you find your own answer to it again. So my whole career has been for me. It hasn't been for any director, but I'm able to give my performances to the directors. Um, and I'm, I have quite a wide range of adjustments. I can, I can become quite a number of characters, far too many people in here right now. So I can pull a lot of those out and, and become anything practically for a director, but it, it is, they're all true to me. That's why I never felt like I was um, just a, a cog in a machine, right? I never felt like there was anyone over me or under me. There were just people in different jobs. And the director's job, and I've been a director, is the lonely job of being the chooser. <laughs> and trust me, when you have 10 wonderful ideas on a table and you only are going to pick one of those, it's hard. It's really hard. They're all like children and you're, you're murdering everyone except one and all that. I think it's really important for young artists to not put their sense of self-esteem in whether their work is accepted or not. That's, that's nothing to do with whether it's any good. Yeah, it's I, to do I, with whether it fits the vision of the director. I know that there were lots of scenes that I worked on that got cut out of the film, you know, in, in shots that I worked for a long time on. And someone asked, yeah. does that upset you? I was like, no, it was a fun time to work on it. <laughs> like, like yeah. I got paid. I got paid to do a shot, you know, that was really cool. And I have no, I don't care. I don't care whether it was in the film or not. You know, like it was like, I, yeah. I just, I got, I got paid to do something that I love to do. And more important, you get to do more shots. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if if you great. don't complain about it, you get to do more shots. Oh, if you complain it. about it a lot, then you don't get to do any more shots. Right. <laughs> go, go ahead, Chris. You gotta, you gotta think about that a little bit, Alex. Um, God, there's so many things I'd, I'd love to ask you about. Ian, I've always felt that um, Jar Jar to our generation was seen differently than 
say C-3PO was when I was 15 years old or 14 years mm-hmm. old when I first saw Star Wars as a kid. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that a lot of adults, us, when uh, Jar Jar was thrust upon us, we were like, ugh, this guy annoys me. But I think that it, had I been, whatever the time frame was, 30 years, uh, 25 years older, when I first met C-3PO, I probably oh. would have felt the same way about him. Wow. And and I always thought that like Jar Jar was like this kind of comedic foil that as an adult I find him annoying, but I think I would have found C three PO annoying too had I been twenty five years older when I first met him. Do you think I there's think any correlation right. between those two characters? Totally, absolutely. I don't okay. think an exact correlation because every character is different. Sure. And C three PO works in tandem with R two D two, so that's a very very old device. It's the um, it's the Greek clowns. And I don't know if you remember in Greek theater, they would usually start by bringing two clowns on the stage and they'd make you laugh and fall in love with them. Just it's easy to fall in love with clowns and to be terrified of them too, but you fall in love with them. Once you are with them, they can then take you somewhere very dark and you're safe because you're with the clowns. So R2-D2 and C-3PO were the two clowns from Greek tragedy. And we fell in love with them first because they're bickering in the middle of a war. It's great. It's great to see, you know, human beings are still human beings, even in dire circumstances. And then they take us to a worse circumstance, but you're always with them. And they're always funny enough that you love them. Funny, by the way, is not, it's not telling jokes. Um, It's trying to find the absurdity of a character in a situation. Uh, And, and I think that's what I was saying with Jar Jar. They didn't let him be absurd enough. They dialed him in and, and that's a shame. Because when he is absurd, he's fun. It's that's the problem with have with you know it, it's the beige syndrome when you get too many <laughs> minds. I mean, if if George was convinced that Jar Jar should have been dialed up to ten, you know he he was too worried about what other people said if if they kept pulling him back. You know, who knows? <clears throat> he yeah. didn't share a lot of those thoughts with us. I do remember when, when the reviews came out, he brought up a giant book of the reviews from Empire Strikes Back, and he got blasted for Yoda. Blasted. Which is hard to believe these days. Yoda's such a beloved character, but literally they go, what is this man doing putting a Muppet in my Star Wars movies? <laughs> uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you mentioned uh, earlier the the hero's journey, mm. and do you think there's a commonality as Joseph Joseph Campbell? I assume you're referring to his book uh, of the uh, hero of the thousand faces, et cetera. That there's a commonality in mythology of all these stories that runs through um, that people kind of latch on to that common thread of that hero's journey. And the structure kind of remains similar, and so it it becomes familiar uh, to the reader and uh, the the person and the character. And the other question is, um, uh, do you find that uh, you have to develop a backstory when you're designing the look of a character? You have to develop a backstory first to like uh, Princess Amidala. What was her upbringing? Why was her makeup so perfect and her hair so perfect? Did she lead a sheltered life, etc.? Uh, does that pay a, play a, a large part in your in your physical design of a character if you're coming up with the look of a specific character? That's a really good question. Actually, two really good questions. So I'll do the second one first because it's easier. Um, yes, 
And so the first question, no, <laughs> second question, the answer is absolutely. I have to make up a story or I can't design anything. Um, it very rarely is the story that George comes up with or that actually is part of the film. If I have a script, it's easy, but I often come in before there's a script. I come in very, very early on in a film. And I know that there's a kind of a character and has to fulfill the nemesis role or the hero role or whatever, but then there's nothing else to go on. So I then just invent stuff and I invent it for myself. Um, Darth Maul was that. He, I, all I knew was he was a Sith Lord. I didn't know if he was a male, female, plant, you know, I had no idea. And the only other Sith Lord I'd ever seen was Darth Vader. So <clears throat> I made up a story for him after I tried to out helmet Darth Vader, which was impo uh, impossible. It's a perfect design. You can't do better. You can do as good, but you can't do better. So I took the helmet off and I had a lot more fun trying to find out what was underneath the helmet. And um, for the final design, I thought, well, damn, I'm going to get up in the morning and make myself into a Sith Lord. I'd have a ritual that makes me really pissed off. So I had him bind his head with piano, <laughs> piano wire in the morning. I know it doesn't make, it doesn't have to make any sense. But if I bind my head with this really sharp wire that cuts into my skin and it has black feathers on it that you have to make sure in the right place, so you have to grind it in like this till it's perfect. Um, that's what I gave him. And then they interpreted my black stiffened feathers as horns. So, you know, it doesn't matter what it becomes. It matters what juice you put into it. I know there's one artist, I forget who it is. It might have been Bill Senkevich. He used to take his drawings and then go out into the parking lot and beat them with a chain. And that's maybe going too far. No, no, but he used to think like the energy in this is going to translate. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I think that part of it is that, that sometimes that misunderstanding. I know I have a, uh, I actually have a family member that just misunderstands what everybody says all the time. Right. And, and his version of the world is so much funnier than everybody else's. Like, you know, he's <laughs> like, you know, he has these stories because it's just his, his version of all of these things is really, right. it's, it's a hilarious. And so, but that back and forth, I think that is, you know, in a lot of cases, the back and forth of that, the creative process when you have a really good, yes. and, 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 the, and I think that, that that was what we saw in the Star Wars art department is so many totally. incredible creatives totally. and just the popcorn that happened between them. Uh, oh, it was what we great. Had. We threw drawings back and forth all the time. It was really fun. Um, but you also have to remember that you're only creating part of the work. The other part is the audience or in a book, the reader, because in a book, you know, those are just a bunch of words and they're inert. There's no images there. So when you read a book, the reader supplies the images. You, so they're doing half the work, they're creating the half of the film in their heads and stuff. And it's actually the same for film too. You're still only suggesting things and they have to create the rest of it in their heads. If you set up the right you know, markers, people will create the right kind of thing. They just won't create the exact same story as you, but it'll have the same juice and the same feeling and emotion that your story had. So that's, that's what I do when I'm creating. And then you asked about, um, what was the first part of the question again? Uh, about uh, Joseph Campbell and the... Oh, yeah. So, so Joseph Campbell studied a lot of myths from around the world and came up with a, a formula that seemed to fit most of them. The problem with formulas is that they generalize, right? Not to criticize Campbell. He did great, great work. Um, but George didn't just look at Joseph Campbell. He didn't get that, and then that was his Bible for Star Wars. You know, he has every classic... I know I've seen him. He's got every classic known to man on his desktop and lots of posts stuck in those books. And he knows different kinds of storytelling. And, and I think it's important that everybody does, right? Because a, a formula 
followed without truth just becomes empty. And I suspect that a lot of the people that are mitigating risk are trying to hit those beats without understanding that that's, um, that's not what they're there for. They're there to provoke creativity. They're not there to restrict it. Um, so, yeah, Go that's how I feel about jo- Joseph Campbell's <laughs> girl with a thousand faces, which is very lovely. And I never use it. <laughs> Jason. Oh, uh, wonderful to talk to you. I, I'm going to bring you back about 15 years. Uh, it took me a while to find this. Um, you, you did a drawing about hair. Um, I did. And, and my immediate thought about this was, you know, so what it says is look at the places where hair is supported, where it's unsupported, uh, the longer the hair and the obvious, you know, um, gravity affecting. And, and my question about that is, does anime throw this rule out the window or are they always just moving like crazy? <laughs> anime, from my, you know, Western perspective, is um, it's just the energy turned up to match what it feels like as opposed to what it looks like. So my, I mean, my hair is always moving. I even still have some, but it's just, you know, it, in, in my mind, my hair does not look like my hair really looks or feels. And um, most things in my life are like that. They feel different inside than they do outside. And I think anime is an attempt to portray how things feel, not how they look. And from a youthful really loving every moment of everything, including the horrible things standpoint, um, they, they just pump it all up. They pump it up all the way and remind, and it's good because it makes you feel young. It makes you feel like you're a kid again when everything is bigger and louder and more exciting. Um, although I'm still like that, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> let's, go to, let's go to the questions. First one comes in from James Babbitt in San Diego, California. And James asks, please tell us about the first time you met Alex Lindsay. <laughs> first time I met Alex Lindsay was in the Star Wars art department. Um, so they segregated us. They kept all the computer guys. By the way, you have to remember, computers. You don't use computers for filmmaking. What are you talking about? That had only just started to happen when I was at ILM. So yeah, first show was um, Terminator 2. And, you know, the, the whole idea of using a computer to turn metal liquid and replace shots and things with that instead of doing it practically and optically and so on was groundbreaking. But nobody used a computer. We all drew on paper. And I think for all of episode one and all of episode two, I only still drew on paper. Um, but suddenly, animatics... This, this idea that you could use a computer to pre-visualize a shot. I think it was uh, Mission Impossible, wasn't it? That David yeah, Desorts yeah. did the that very first, first pre-vis ever. Yeah. And George then created a pre-vis department and, and, and uh, kept them over on the other side of the top floor of the main building at Skywalker Ranch. And that was always like walking into what would have been Hogwarts, right? And they're all doing their magic and they're all doing their things. You have no idea what it is because you're a muggle and you just go back to your own side and assume that, that, you know, not going to blow the building up. And Alex, Alex was just very friendly and gregarious. And we, we ended up talking a lot. Um, Mostly I did it to provoke his fantastic voice because honestly, having grown up on radio, I know a radio guy when I see one and Alex is the epitome of that to me. So 
I would do anything just to get him talking. But we, we bonded over a million things and became really good friends. And actually, um, just how long ago is that now, Alex? That's like forever. Years ago, I think 20, well, actually 20, it would have been um, very close to this date, 20, uh, oof. Um, so a lot yeah, of our 20, listeners weren't even ago. born when they <laughs> when we first ago. met. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a funny thing about time too. Yeah. This isn't what I look like inside, right? <laughs> yeah, and exactly. it's weird. It's fun. I love that there's this secret recipe for what you're supposed to be at every age, right? Including right to your death, and it's there in your body, and you get to see little peaks of it every morning as you creep, you know, go to the mirror. Um, I like that. I like getting older. I like. I like that there's. My face was really smooth. Back when Alex met me, there were no wrinkles anywhere. And it was really annoying because it's really hard to draw a face that's really smooth. Um, <laughs> I wanted an old, old man's face with a giant beard. And I, this is like a week's growth. I can't grow a beard. So, yeah, nothing's turned out the way I thought it would. But, um, yeah, Alex, you almost haven't aged at all. We we both have the scaffolding of the hair we used to have. Old old pictures. I've aged a little, (laughs) a little, not much. Um, Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) My dad was bald since he was nineteen years old, so I knew that was my fate. And to me, he was also bodybuilder, by the way. So bald equals muscles. So I can't wait. I know when I lose the rest of this, my muscles will just start to grow. It's It's a Mr. Clean thing. Right? Totally, totally. Well, we had Jewel Brenner and all those, you know, role models when I was a kid. We got Vin Diesel today. So they've all got muscles. So that's the rule. You lose your hair, you get muscles. Next question. Next one comes from Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. And Bobby says, Ian, your artwork has historically been brought to life visually in film. Can you talk about bringing that artwork to tangible real world experiences at the Disney theme parks? Oh, my. (laughs) That was Hogwarts. Going down to work with Imagineering and suddenly everybody's this crazy professor of something amazing. Um, So I, I wasn't on it for a long, long time. We, and again, I... I designed a lot of stuff. I created a lot of stuff with them that is not in the parks yet, but will be. So I have to be careful what I talk about. Um, but uh, I went in as a character and story creator uh, to help them with a character that's not currently in the parks and um, to create out of that a wealth of other characters that are currently not in the parks. The idea, I think... Can I say this? The idea is that uh, maybe Galaxy's Edge is a real place in the Star Wars universe. And who knows if it would appear someday in the movies and a whole new series set out on that outer rim. Um, Wouldn't that be fun? And if they do, I guarantee there's a whole set of characters and a whole set of stories for them (laughs) waiting to happen. By the way, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a secret agent. So bad. So, so bad. I... No, really. Uh, yeah. You would have been in my secret service because I started one at high school. I started a real secret service. Um, we had Didn't agents. Everybody wanted to be a secret agent? I thought everybody wanted to be a secret well, agent when they were a kid. I had a book called How to Be James Bond. Ah, uh, there right? you go. Confession. <laughs> it, was written by, uh, it was written by this pseudonym that I didn't know the guy, but it was Martin Amos. I believe. Fantastic novelist. And anyway, so it was all these tips on how to be James Bond and how to convince everyone you were James Bond. And I still remember there's, um, there was one trick. 
you convince your your father and if he won't do it your your mother or a neighbor to run you over and here's how to survive getting run over when a car comes i don't know if this works by the way but when a car don't try this at home when a car comes towards you and you're supposed to practice slowly car comes towards you you don't run bolt try to do anything you turn towards the car put your hands out and you jump towards it you put your hands on the hood you flip your legs off to the side and you vault over to the side of the road out of harm's way it looks really impressive i've done it at slow motion many many times it does impress people um and i taught my i mean when my daughter was very young i used to tell her stories of what i did when i was a secret agent and um she remembered that one and then when she was crossing the road once uh, four lanes and the guy on this side had stopped so she could go across and she's walking over in her high platform shoes the guy on this side didn't see that someone was walking and she didn't see that he hadn't stopped so she gets one foot past this car she sees this other car speeding straight at her and of course she remembers she turns towards the car she puts her hands out she jumps on the hood it's going so fast it flips her up twice into the air and she lands bang on her feet Perfectly <laughs> to the applause of people up and down the road. Yeah. <laughs> so I've never put don't, that to don't try that battle anymore. test conditions before, but apparently it works. <laughs> so anyway, so I did actually start a secret service. I, I had agents. We had drop boxes. I learned enough martial arts to try and teach everybody. Uh, we solved the crime. Uh, we, we found something that had been stolen. I then took the keys that I had duplicated. And I'll teach you how to do that someday, yeah. if you don't already know. Um, but I, I took the grappling hook out of my belt. I scaled the side of the gym. I went into our principal's office, opened his door, and put the lost item on top and said, compliments of Lance with like dots in between each of the letters because <laughs> it's Lansdowne counter-espionage. And in the morning, I just sat there with... No smile on my face because secret agents don't give away what they've done. Right. And then we, at the end of all the announcements, I heard this, oh, and thank you, Lance, whoever <laughs> you are. <laughs> That's great. So anyway, we did all that. And then, and then the bad thing is we had a rule book and nothing else happened because we obviously scared all the criminals away. And I went in one morning and my rule book had been stapled page by page all the way down the hall. Uh, and that was it. We had to find who had done this. And, and so we, we did an internal hunt. It was one of my own agents. It was my best agent. And he turned oh, mole because he was bored. Uh, so we hauled him into a, an annex and we did a kangaroo court on him. And uh, he obviously guilty. So I opened the rule book to see what you do with guilty spies. And, you know, sentence was death. <laughs> and I realized, hmm, may have gone too far. So I disbanded the Secret Service. Went home, wrote a letter to the United States Secret Service and asked for a job. Oh, there you go. And they wrote back and gave me a time and a date to appear. And my dad wrote back and said, he can't do that. He's got school that day. <laughs> I was so humiliated. Oh. Um, but my mom took me aside and she said, why don't you just write about it? There you go. There That's you when go. I started telling stories. Oh, that's great. Next question. James Babbitt, back from San Diego. Could you please share some memorable experiences from your work on Star Wars and Harry Potter? Oh, my. Uh, well, let's do a Harry Potter one first, because um, most people have heard the Star Wars stories, so there's millions of those. Uh, when, I, when I worked on Harry Potter, I had just learned to drive. Um, wasn't confident on the road, so I avoided cars when I could. And by the way, I'm 40. 
and I learned to drive at 40. Uh, that's another story. So I flew over to London and we worked in Leaveston Studios, which now is this gorgeous here place, uh, a showcase of all the productions that have, there were James Bond films there, there were Harry Potter films forever there. Um, when I went there, it was strange, dark and slightly toxic old airport uh, with the control tower locked. So if you, whenever you go past it from the creaky dungeons where the costume department was up to the slightly warmer art department, you'd pass by the set of stairs that would go up to this locked door and this green toxic fluid would be slightly dripping out from underneath the door. And by gum, I sure wanted to go in there and see what it was and see if you got superpowers from it. But I never did. And so uh, we worked and, and designed in Leaky Leaveston Studios for a long, long time with a, a really great group of people. And the nice thing was Stuart Craig, you know, again, if you're talking about that hierarchy, um, Stuart Craig was the production designer. So technically he's over all of the concept artists. And yet he gave everybody free reign. You could do all, we felt like you could do anything you wanted. I know he was quietly like pushing you in the right direction and making it all fit. But um, a good a good director knows when to let the horses run and he let the horses run. So despite the conditions that we were in there, I had the best time. The only scary moment was they had been giving me a driver because it's left-hand side of the road. It's winter, there's snow, threatening to snow. Um, and Ian's only just learned to drive. So he's a danger to everybody. So they would give me um, taxis and a driver took me to the studio and then they decided that was too much money. So one night without telling me, as we're going home, somebody comes up, puts keys on my desk and goes, this is your car. It's, it's, this is the license plate number. It's out there in the parking lot. And I was like, what? <gasps> I have to drive home all by myself. So I went out and it had snowed. So I couldn't find the darn car, had to try to figure out how to get the snow off the windows. That's where I learned about credit cards and scrapings and stuff. And then I had to drive on the left-hand side of the road in the snow all the way down into and through London. If you've ever driven in London, you know that it was made for horses and carts. Barely. barely. And, uh, and yet it's two, two lanes of traffic and parked cars on a road the width of a single lane. I live to tell the tale. <laughs> Next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana is up next. And Roscoe asks, as a collaborative artist, what elements have you ever had to fight for or found worthy of fighting for? And did you win? Yes, <laughs> I did. Uh, I don't look at it that way. I don't look at it as a, as a fight. I would never fight a director for something. If I really, really found I was at odds with that, then I've been miscast and I would leave. I would leave his production. I try to um, get to know the director and the story enough beforehand to know if I'm right for that project exactly as if you were an actor doing a part. Uh, but once I was working for a director who is a friend and a fantastic director, John Favreau. Um, I'd worked with him on an earlier version of John Carter of Mars. Uh, I helped set up the Marvel art department and then decided not to stay on the production they were doing called Iron Man. Um, that's another story. But uh, John Favreau went on and did lots of things and, and directed 
the live action, live action, it's all animated, except for Mowgli, the Jungle Book, right, that Disney did, and uh, asked if I would come and, and help with that. That was right after Force Awakens. And Jungle Book's the first film I ever saw in a theater as a kid. I mean, I love that story. And I and the books I'd read, everything, you know, that Kipling, like Richard Kipling wrote. And I, I loved the books even more. So, of course, I was going to work on that with him. Um, and as we're designing and going along, designing everything, every once in a while in a film, somebody makes up a rule. And because it's made up, you can change it, but they forget that. So the, the rule for this now was, I forget, I don't even know who made it up. John wouldn't have made this up, but the only animals they were going to put in the film were the ones that actually come from India, because that's where the story is set. And that makes total sense if you're doing a live action film documentary about animal life in India. But that means you can't use King Louis. You can't have the King of the Apes because he's an orangutan and those don't come from India. They don't even live in India, except in zoos. So suddenly there's no King Louie in the film. And that's not going to happen on my watch. So yes, that was the one time I ever remember fighting for anything. Um, but it wasn't trying to convince them to do that. You can only show them how it can work. So I'm a dinosaur guy, right? I love prehistoric life. I, I love um, paleontology and so on. So I just thought, well, <laughs> It's got to be a prehistoric orangutan somewhere. So I, I looked around and I found it. And it was almost like I created it with my mind. It's, uh, it's called a Gigantopithecus. It's 20 feet tall or more. Some people speculate that the surviving Gigantopithecuses, just like the Nessies of the world, um, begat the legend of the Yeti. Uh -huh. And guess where they lived? India! Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I knew that. I knew, of course, they would come from India, but in hindsight, it's kind of magic that that happened that way. So I drew this giant Gigantopithecus and I sent it off to them and, um, and told them it was from India. And that's why there is a giant king ape in the movie. I have to admit that one of my bucket, on my bucket list is to, read, is to, is to do Ricky Tikki Tavi again, although I oh, love yes. the original so much. I don't know if I could do it again. Like, I don't know if I could, I could take that again and redo it, but I feel like it'd be so much fun to work on. You know, like fantastic. I will help you with that one. Okay, okay, we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, the next question. See, wait, that, that's, an example, that's an example of how Alex and I met. Oh, we could do this. Yeah, I'll help you. And, uh, yeah, exactly. That is, that is totally. Well, and, and when you're lucky, you end up in a community where there's a lot of, you know, we have friends the, that Ian and I and the two of us are, you know, and then there's others in our network that you just go there, you know, a lot of times we just go, hey, we want to do something. And then we all come together and try to figure out yeah. how we can all put the part that we can do relatively, you know, easily to get something off the ground, you know, and yeah, so play with kids it. in the garage again. You just make yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Next, next I'm question. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. All That's good. Okay. Stefan Fischer, Würzburg, Germany, says many storylines go back to the hero's journey of Joseph Campbell. Can stories get boring when they follow that structure because they follow the structure, or is it other things that make stories boring? Mm. Stories get boring when you know what's going to happen, right? When you can see ahead of the storyteller. Um, that's a device that you can use to your advantage and you can lead someone along and they go, yeah, 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 yeah. And just before you know they're going to give up, you show them it doesn't go there. It goes somewhere else. Um, but, but again, it's like I was saying earlier, there's no guarantee 
the audience is going to clap, whether you follow Joseph Campbell or not. And so you first and foremost have to tell a story that interests you, something that makes you excited or afraid or laugh or whatever you, feeling you want to have. And if it works for you, the chances are it's probably going to work for at least one or two other people in the world, if not millions. So you trust that instinct and that feeling, and that's what keeps it from being boring for that segment of the population. But as you can see from movie reviews, it never works for everybody or rarely works for everybody. Um, and that's as it should be. Stories aren't made for everybody. Stories are at their best when they're very personal. I got a, I got a hard question for you. We're at the end of the hour. Oh, I like so, hard questions. What happened with John Carter and, and, and Mark? <laughs> what happened? Well, first, it was the cursed, cursed film because it uh, had been around for almost 100 years and everybody had been trying to make it. I think there was an early uh, attempt. It would have been the world's first animated feature film. Right. And um, unfortunately, the people who were doing the animation, when they showed it to Edgar Rice Burroughs, had thought it was a comedy. Oh. <laughs> and Burroughs went, I was serious. And so he threw it out and they never got to do that. But um, I worked on it four times. There was a <laughs> early version back at ILM, when right. I was still at ILM. Yep. Um, and this was... John McTiernan was going to do it. Patrick Swayze would have been John Carter, wow. uh, or at least he was the contender for John Carter. And uh, the problem, the reason that one didn't get made, because the script was by Ted and Terry Russo, uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean guys. Right. And it was fun, really fun script. Yeah. But um, again, we didn't have digital technology. We didn't have the capability of making... Yeah, four-armed aliens... By the thousands battling other strange creatures? I don't think so. And so there just wasn't a way to do it. And that, that kind of fell apart. Uh, when I came back, it was Kerry Conran. This is a long time later. And he just made Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. So, you know, the guy who kind of invented the green screen movies, he could handle the Tharks. Mm -hmm. And um, I worked with him for, for about a year. And Kerry is amazing. He's an amazing director and a visionary and all the rest. And we're still good friends. And I still help him on films that haven't been made, but we keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, and his John Carter of Mars was truly epic. You know, you'd show something to Kerry and show him like two or three different ideas and ask him which one he wants. He goes, do I have to choose? <laughs> and all three would be in the movie. Right. Um, we, that was for Paramount. Paramount loved what we did visually. Uh, we made a big presentation in the theater for them. I remember there was like a film. You think yeah. you can see it. It's online. Kerry Conran's John Carter. You can see the little film we made for them. Dated now, especially the CG effects, but um, all the art, that was my team and, yeah. and me. Um, and Paramount loved that and then said, okay, great. Let's see the script. And the script was written by Aaron Kruger, who wrote The Ring. And uh, he's a really good writer, writes great, scary as shit stuff. Problem is, John Carter is not that kind of movie. John Carter is like right. your first fight in the playground and your first kiss. And, you know, it's like coming of age boy stuff yeah. uh, and tough girl stuff. Yeah. So um, that script didn't support what we did visually and they canned the movie. And unfortunately that was Kerry lost his shot doing it. They took me aside though. And they said, we loved what you did visually. Will you wait around until 
we have another director and then come and do this again. And I went, yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> Years later, <laughs> Paramount calls me up. By now I have a studio I formed called Ninth Ray after the Ninth Ray from John Carter. Mm-hmm. And we've done lots of other movies, uh, Outlander, Charlotte's Web, all kinds of things. And, uh, and yes, now they're going to do John Carter. And there's this new guy called John Favreau. And like, John Favreau. And no, John Favreau wasn't the name back then, except for swingers and, you know, independent little things. Right. He'd done Sathura, uh, but I, I don't even know if that was in the theaters yet. Anyway, he calls me up and he says, I've been told I'm supposed to come and look at some drawings you've got. Because I had them all in a box in my right, right, right. But I hadn't any furniture. I had just moved into this place. So there's a box of drawings and that's it. And I said, jerk, come over. And I remember Favreau and I sitting on the floor, on the carpet, opening this box and John Carter drawings spilling out everywhere. And um, he goes, my kids tell me I should do this. I was like, you should do this. This film <laughs> must, you must break the curse. Yeah. So we worked for John Favreau and he, right. he got two writers in and John's just a big kid. Yeah. So he knows first fights on the playground and gets his first kisses and all that stuff. And he nailed it. He nailed it. His writers wrote the best script I've ever read for John Carter. And um, we designed it again and in a different way, but just as good, I thought. Um, and that was it. Paramount looked at it and went, done. We'll green light this. And then he came in and said, or I've been offered this other film, Iron Man. Oh, no. And just yeah. like John Carter, boom. Boom, we went off to Marvel to do Iron Man. And that was the end of that project. So then it died. And um, much, much later, I heard that uh, Disney had picked it up. And because Disney had picked it up, a John Carter of Mars fan, Andrew Stanton, who was hot off of Wally, was going to uh, turn it into a live action film, his first live action film. And I, I... had a meeting with him up at, uh, at Pixar. Yeah. And for me, you know, I grew up on the Frank Frazetta, John Carter drawings, right? And Fra- John Carter looks like Clint Eastwood. Because right. Frank Frazetta looks like Clint Eastwood. And, uh, and I've always been trying to get the new Clint Eastwood, the new Clint Eastwood lookalike great actor to play John Carter. It's Hugh Jackman. And remember, this is, right. this is young Hugh Jackman, like early Wolverine days, yeah. but he's got the perfect look and he's the perfect kind of, act, he's the perfect character for it. So I was only going to work on the thing at Pixar if Hugh Jackman was going to be John Carter. So that was it. I had my meeting with, with uh, Andrew over lunch. You, 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 and had, I, a line. you had a line. I just said, hey, just one question and it'll tell you whether I'm going to help you or not. Uh, who is John Carter? And Andrew said, it's Hugh Jackman. <laughs> that was it. And you're like, the blood pact we're not going to do john carter right and uh what happened with that film was you know it's his first live action film and there are things you can again it's you can risk changing the storyline of a classic and you probably should because it has to be reimagined how you would imagine it but i think they they got rid of something that was core to john carter and by the way, it's not called John Carter of Mars. The story they were making is Princess of Mars. No one would let any studio make Princess of Mars because they say boys won't go see a film with princess in the title. Princess Bride. Right. So um, what they did is John Carter, it's, it's the first book Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote. 
right? He wrote it right after, um, I think, being a soldier and a, a failed soldier and a failed farmer and a failed businessman. And he's got a wife and he's got two kids and he's selling the ads in the back of a pulp magazine. And they're starving. And he's out of boredom reading one of the stories. And he goes, this is crap. I could write this. So he sits down and writes um, what will become Princess of Mars, sends it off, uses a pseudonym, Normal Bean, he calls it. Um, and they thought it was Norman Bean, and they loved the story, and it got published. And they came back to him and said, can you write us a sequel? He goes, I don't do sequels. And he sits down and writes Tarzan of the Apes. And he kept doing that. He kept like writing a new classic series to be, and then in the end did like 11 sequels for John Carter, something like that. So if you think of Princess of Mars in that context, it is the proto-Tarzan. It's got all the same elements in it. And Tarzan takes one look at Jane, and that's it. It's Tarzan and Jane forever. You know that, right? There's no, I don't like you, and then get to know each other. So that's central to John Carter. John Carter sees this, you know, strange human-shaped alien that's being attacked by the Tharks, and they capture this creature, and then pull its head off. And underneath that head is a beautiful woman. And John Carter takes one look at her, and she takes one look at him, and they're in love forever. And I remember Andrew said to me, nobody believes in love at first sight anymore. I was like, I do. (laughs) So he changed it now. And John Carter has a wife, but his wife has died. And he's never going to fall in love again. And there's Dejah Thoris, and she doesn't like him at first, but she's going to use him. And it's like, oh, no, it's a simple story about boy meets girl and loves her. (laughs) And everybody gets in the way. So that... That took away from what I think was central to John Carter. And and so a bunch of choices like that that I wouldn't have made doesn't mean it would have been a better right. film, but um, I don't think it helped the film that was. It's hard, it's hard to, especially when something, when people, the hard part is when you get away from something that's been written, you, you, you lose your core audience. And so you have to make sure that you're going to engage the new audience because you've given right. up the one that was going to go to the movie. That's right. Yeah. Your core, your fans aren't going to love you for what you did. Plus don't forget John Carter, princess of Mars. I'm going to call it the real name. Princess of Mars was, um, brand new. It was a brand new kind of story. It didn't steal from anything. It stole from his own personal experiences and right. make believe in his mind of what those things were like. Since then, over those hundred years, you know, it gave birth to Flash Gordon. It gave birth even to Star Wars, in a sense, and all sorts of things. So now when you go back to do the original, it looks like you're ripping off all the people who ripped you off. Right. So we had that problem, too. How do you make it? How do you make a classic that was the original look fresh when you've had everything stolen? Last question for the first for the hour. Last question comes up from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. Ian, you're so energetic and full of passion for your crafts. Do you get creative blocks? And if so, how do you manage? Oh, I love creative blocks. They're the best because that shows you you've come to the end of the little border of who you are, right? It just means you haven't learned something yet. So when I run up against one of those, like, thank you. Thank you. Let's get out there and see what it is. So Whatever it is I'm trying to draw or write that I can't do, I stop and I go and learn. So if it's something about a character, I go and I read about people like that. If it's something in a drawing that I don't know, I learn it. And I don't just learn how to draw it. I learn about it. I learn where it comes from, what it eats for breakfast. I learn everything I can. And then when I know 
deep in my soul what this thing is and I can perform it from the inside, I go back and draw it. And usually I can do it in 15 minutes. Sometimes I'll allow myself to hit up against that wall just for the fun of it, right? Just to see how bad you can mess up a drawing and how angry you can get and all that stuff. But there's always a part of you behind the mask that's just going, (laughs) yeah, get mad, baby. Because it's just that, you know what it is? It's all that energy building up that the moment you get the obstacle out of the way, it goes. Yeah. So yes, love writer's block and artist's block. Ian, so great to have you. Oh, thanks. This has been a real pleasure. I wish all of you were talking now. I love your voices. <laughs> it's a, we'll, we're going to try to get you back on every once in a while if, you, if, if you're open to sure. it. And, and no, that would be great. That'd be really so, great. And let's definitely do that radio play. Let's do it. Well, and, and, and you know, we could almost do it live. I think we should. I think we should think about how to do that live. Just like this, right? Yeah. Including one of these little boxes of somebody doing the live sound effects. Oh, yeah. In a world. In the world. Yes. Beautifully done. Yeah. But no, really, the guy at the side with the coconuts and the the can of coins. I think so. It'd be funny to just have a couple, a window of the the effects would be. I did that once, by the way. I did it live. I was was a script I was considering directing, but I wanted to see how an audience responded. So I rented a theater. Coppola does this. Uh, So I rented a theater. And I got a circle of actors on stage, and we performed it live to uh, to an audience. But we did have a sound effects guy at the side. It's the yeah. best. Anyway, yeah. thank you all. Thank you so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. All right. And, well, and we'll see you, you again. Thank you. Soon. Soon. Uh, thank, thanks again. Have a great, have a great, um, you're, you're down here or you're in, um, Pasadena. Um, I'll be in for- Pasadena in a week's time, as you pointed out, it's yeah. on the, t- <laughs> yikes, it's on the 25th, I think, 25th, yeah. 26th, I think 27th. Tw- yeah. And, and it's Lightbox. Yeah. Lightbox Expo. It's all the animators, concept artists, all those kind of people. James Gurney will be there, creator of Dinotopia. It's a fun event. Sounds amazing. Like I didn't even know it existed until you said you were going. And now I'm like, there you oh. go. no, come along, come all along. Right, It'll all be right. fun. We'll see. We'll see if we can figure that out. Uh, thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you. Um, thanks to the producers who asked all these great questions, kept the whole thing moving forward. And I want to thank, uh, I was a little under the weather this morning. So I'm, I want to thank all the panelists and the producers for co- coming up and really making it a great show uh, throughout that first hour. Um, thanks to the incredible team on the back end um, that makes all of this happen. There's there's code being written. There's management meetings that are being had. There's all these other things that are getting put together. And, um, and we really appreciate all the contribution that all of you make, the people cutting the show while we're watching somewhere in the world. Uh, it's just, it's really, it's, it's, it really is a group effort and we really appreciate all of your contribution. We traveled 71,000 miles today answering those questions, 115,000 kilometers, and that is 566 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. 